the Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan podcast by night, all day. Brian Callen was going to try to make it here today. Oh, really? But he... Uh, he had some podcasts he scheduled in advance. I tried to get him to cancel, but he couldn't. But oh, that's too bad. But he's very excited to come with us to Alaska, and that should be a, a nice, silly trip. Man, I'm, I'm looking – I'm excited about that trip. It really is. When you get up into that – when I say that, when you get up into the alpine zone, like the above timberline in southeast Alaska, it really like – you know, it's cooler looking than like the Ewok forest. Mm-hmm. you know i mean it's just as amazing because you have this like you go from old growth stuff where you could like the three of us could all stand around joined hand to hand and you couldn't reach around these trees you know wow and you climb a little higher and it's like boom it's just like wide open and it, it, there's there's really nothing like it i and mean you can't you just you can't fathom the beauty of it you know well i've seen it on your show this yeah. is oh, the same yeah. place where you went hunting blacktail deer that's right where you land on a float plane yep. and then you go up into the uh into the the upper regions. Yeah. That was where the fog rolled in and you had that nice deer in your scope and you had yep. to wait. You know, that that time when I was up there, there was a windstorm. The wind was so bad it made the front page news in town. And um seventy they they, they kept saying like seventy some mile an hour winds, blew down a bunch of foam poles. The next day, uh a, a pilot came up to kind of fly over to see if we were still alive and everything, you know, he just wow. kind of cruised around to check. It, it was a, that's the thing is the weather. So when we go on this trip, we could either just get we could either have the worst time or the best time, depending, you know, I mean, just depending on the weather. It can be so just uncomfortable and miserable, or it can be just beautiful. And there's places back in there, uh, you know, Prince Wales Island is huge. It's the, but the, I think by some definitions, either the second or, or it's either the third or fourth biggest island we have. What's interesting about it, that island is it has, you know, half the sur- I think it's half the surface area as Hawaii, the big island in Hawaii. Wow. But it has like three times the coastline. Whoa. It's just, you know, it's just a crazy like fjords and inlets and bays. But there are places in this island that you, you can't really, there's no road system in a, lar- in, a lar- in a lot of it. And there's places you can't fly to because there's no lakes to land. And it's really hard to walk there. So sometimes you're looking at, there's mountains there. And you're like, I guarantee that no one, you know, you can't guarantee. But I mean, like for a hundred years, it's probably no one has stepped foot on that thing. Because you really had, we'd have to get to one place and you'd have to get a boat and carry it through and go across to another place and then climb up. Well, it'd be mostly just climbing. Like you just, when you, if you fly over some of those mountaintops and you look around them, there's just no way. I I just know that no one's been there. Unless you can land up, unless you can land up there on a lake, you know, we'll land on, we'll land in a spot. And I want to just walk from there. And I think we will walk up into stuff that that people haven't walked there. I mean, there's always some crazy thing you didn't know about. But we're going to walk into some stuff where people just have not walked. Wow. You, know, you can stand around places there and say, I, like, you know, I feel very certain that I'm like definitely the first guy to ever have his feet setting right here. I can't discount something that happened you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But... There's just some wild stuff in there. Wow. It's it's a you know right now I got mixed feelings about it too but they just the forest service up there just announced that they're going to be uh opening up a cut up there 6000 acres of old growth. Whoa. For clear cuts, yeah. Wow, that's kind of fucked up. Dude, I understand every single I I understand every single argument for and against. I understand every single argument. What's yeah. for? What's the good aspect of it? 
economics. I mean, that's like it. you used to have a thriving logging industry based around Tongass, you know, Tongass National Forest. So, and it's just atrophied, right? So it's a job creation thing. You know, I mean, that that's the four. The four is just people that live there having access to like a good paying job. The yeah. downside is we have just a minuscule fraction of old growth left. You know. Yeah, I just I don't see why anybody would allow that. I mean, I I understand the economic thing, but I I always feel like there's got to be another way to make money. What's weird too is Tong has just said recently that over the next decade they're looking to phase out old growth logging. At the same time that they are announcing and pushing forth plans to do a big six thousand acre clear cut so they're sort of acknowledging on one hand that they they want to get out of it or need to get out of it or can see into the future they need to get out of it and on the other hand being like but we'll have one last hoorah i guess <laughs> one last party and you're dealing with how old do you think these trees are well, i mean these you know there's they, i can't speak specifically to that particular area but i mean there's like dog firs that are much older than than the birth of this nation out there in cedars, I mean, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. That's just huge, seems giant trees. Up to chop them down and, and make what? It's know? sad, man. But you know, paper. Like everything gets so weirdly. We've talked about this before on the show. How, how things get so convoluted. Like one of the big, just to bring it back to us going on a hunt for sick of blacktail deer. Like those sick of blacktail deer. When we're going to look for them, we're going to be looking for them up in the Alpine, which they'll be leaving. So. They'll be leaving around the time we're going there. That stuff still has snow. Like, where we're going to be looking for deer will still have snow in June, okay? Then it melts off, and there's long days, and it turns, like, beautiful, and it gets very vibrant and green. There's all kinds of succulents, and deer come up out of the timber to feed around there. And then in October, it snows, so you have, like, a couple snow-free months. In October, it snows, and those deer will all split. Traditionally, what those deer want to do is they want to go down and spend the winter down in old growth. Because the old growth canopy allows for kind of a, you know, a snow-free sheltered understory where they're, you know, down on the down on the ground, and they'll hang out in that old growth timber. So an argument against the cut would be that we need it for deer, and a further argument would be the reason we need to protect deer habitat is because we need to protect the wolves out there. And some people right now are trying to make a push to say that the wolves in the Alexander Archipelago, of which Prince of Wales Island is a part, that those wolves are genetically extinct, and they therefore deserve a level of protection, like their own level of protection, that they would get Endangered Species Act protection out on these islands. Hmm. When other people are arguing, it's just the same wolf, man. I mean, it's like you got wolves all over. It does, like That population doesn't deserve any specific thing. So it winds up being that people who might be pushing against the timber sale might wind up also be angling for protecting wolves out there from hunting and trapping. And then you're left to be like, well, I'm not really comfortable with the timber sale, but I'm not really comfortable with you using biological lumping and splitting in order to like close down certain sorts of hunting seasons. So it winds up being that all your friends aren't necessarily, you know, like the enemies of your enemies aren't necessarily your friends. Wow. <laughs> How complicated. Wildlife anyways, management's very oh, complicated. Oh, dude, it's wild. So anyways, we're going into that area and um, <laughs> we're going to hunt some black tailed deer. And it, it, there's a health, there's a good healthy population. You know, it, it's still good. Uh, even a non-resident, you're allowed two bucks. And do they, um, do they have bear up there? Is it black bear? Yeah, but there? the thing about the bears, you'll see some bear droppings or bear scatter bear shit here and there 
But those bears out there are so tuned in on the salmon runs that they really don't spend a lot of time. Um, I think some move through, but they really don't spend a lot of time feeding in those areas because they're down 2,000 feet. Timberline there is like 1,800, 2,000 feet. They're down 2,000 feet lower in the river miles feeding on salmon. And we and we like to have you know that image of the bear grabbing a salmon out and he's all silver and shiny and healthy and floppy. But long after the runs are kind of done, they're down there just they're down there just feeding on rotten fish, Whoa. laying around. I've wa- I've watched wolves there eating dead salmon. I watched five wolves one time eating dead salmon that were the consistency of pudding. Whoa! Just mopping it up. They must have unbelievable stomach bacteria. Oh man, you, you can't even imagine. <laughs> so, um, there's not a lot of bears up there. You know, there's a lot of, you see some berries around, but I think that so many of the berries are focused on that stuff. One thing you find, some people say, in, in, in those islands in Southeast Alaska, they're either like, they tend to be either a black bear island or a grizzly island. And it just, and it changes. So you'd be on one island and it's black bears. Another island is grizzlies. And it's sort of this weird phenomenon that they don't readily mix. You get in interior areas on the mainland where you have grizzlies and black bears coexist, oftentimes the grizzlies will dominate the salmon streams and you'll have more black bears up high. So you could be standing on a mountain a couple thousand feet above sea level and it's just black bears everywhere on top of the mountain feeding on blueberries and you're looking down at primo salmon streams, but it's just big brown bears, big grizzlies down there and they kind of hoard the spot and the black bears don't get in there. They just can't. They, they, I mean, they, they, they you know, they're, they're kind of mm-hmm. enemies, yeah. They'll eat them too, right? The, the, They'll eat the grizzlies. them. Grizzlies. Yeah. The uh, the place that I was up in um, Alberta when we went bear hunting, they take uh, carcasses after they you know cut the back straps off and the hams. They'll take like the body cavity and they they leave it in certain areas where they know grizzlies are to keep the grizzlies coming. To oh, that is that area. right? <clears throat> yeah, because they don't want the grizzlies coming to the um, the other uh, baits, the baits they have out for the black bear. No if they Do they have to abandon that bait yep. because it's just too sketchy? They have some photos, some tra- camera trap photos of these fucking enormous grizzlies wandering Just feeding in. up on black bears. Yeah. I got a buddy who saw one time, he witnessed a grizzly kill a black bear, disembowel it, and eat its liver. Whoa. Yeah. And there's a there's a very well-regarded hunting guide in Alaska who's written some good hunting books about Alaska named Tony Russ. And I was reading his book on hunting Kodiak. Or he's got he's got a book on hunting brown bears and grizzlies in alaska and a lot of his experiences around kodiak and the alaska peninsula and he was saying he's never seen and and just to back up for a minute on kodiak a sig like if you map out a bear's diet okay a bear a boar bear a male brown bear or grizzly you know brown bear on kodiak if you map out his annual diet what he's tuned into in the spring are brown bear cubs yeah he's like males right? he's like wakes up and he's hunting brown bear cubs. And that's a, fucked up. It's a significant part of his diet. But what Tony Russ has said in all of his years of guiding, he's never seen where when you kill a big, mature boar brown bear, he's never seen where another brown bear will come and scavenge that carcass. Wow. They'll sca- they, they, even with the thing skinned out and butchered, right? They recognize through smell or whatever, they will not mess with that thing. That's weird. That's what he says. Black bears and this guy's do. seen. Oh, yeah. And this guy's seen a lot. But he was saying nothing will touch those big boars, the wow, body on them. He's too scared of them? They just, I don't know. Even with I, it's something about them, the smell or something, they just know that they don't want anything to do with it. Wow. 
when we were in uh, Alberta, one of the guys shot a bear late at night, and they didn't want to retrieve it because there was too many bears in the area. It was just getting sketchy. They, they shot the bear like right at the moment where it was getting dark out, and the bear ran off, and they, they just said, we'll come back in the morning. So they came back in the morning, and a big boar was eating the other black bear. Oh, really? So they, had, they were taking selfies, like smiling, while there, there was a bear behind them eating a bear carcass. They have to a buddy of mine where he got one, and- Trailed, he shot one with his bow and tracked it in the morning, and it, had, it was just gone. It had been consumed. So crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the wild, man. When we were up there, one of the bears, one of the boars, had uh, attacked a sow, killed its cub, and left half the cub's body, and then the sow came back and finished it off. She ate her own baby. Really? Yeah. She ate her own baby in front of them while they were in the, in the stand. I've heard competing theories about that, that... On one hand, the boar just is doing it because he wants to eat. But there seems to be this upside where there's an additional upside besides caloric intake that a boar will kill a sow's cubs and she'll come back into estrus. Yeah. So when a sow, like a sow's going to, she'll have her, her cubs in the den in February or March. Okay. And they're just little hairless. She don't even know she had them probably. Just these hairless little things. And she'll take care of them. She'll emerge from her den with these little fur balls. She'll stay with them all summer long. She'll den with them again. She'll come out again. And usually at some point that summer, she might get rid of them. And so she's going to be off. Like she won't cycle again, potentially for two years. So if a boar has in his area, he hangs out. He's got a half dozen females. Apparently, it's worth the risk to him that he might be, I'm talking in a, in a genetic sense, it's worth the risk to him that he might be killing his own offspring, which he probably has no idea whether it is or not, kill his own offspring offspring in order to, to have that female go back into estrus and then breed her. Wow. Or whatever kind of calculation. He's probably not, ma- obviously, he's not making that calculation. He's probably just going like, I'm hungry. But an added benefit of it is apparently he get he might double back around and you know and get her again make love to the woman whose <laughs> children he consumed. <laughs> well, dolphins <laughs> actually have a strategy against that because one of the things that a lot of people are not aware we think of dolphins as being really sweet and kind and they're nice to people, but dolphins they eat their own babies. They, I didn't know that. They don't eat their own babies, but they eat dolphin babies. And when a male dolphin finds a female that he has never had sex with and she has babies, they'll oftentimes kill the babies. And they'll kill the babies to force the woman to back to breeding again because she'll go on a seven-year cycle. So when a female dolphin has a baby, she will not breed again for seven years while that baby is being raised and, and growing yeah, older. Yeah, because they put a huge investment apparently. So the strategy for female dolphins is they are sluts and they fuck as many dolphins as they can so that when the male comes around and he sees her with the baby, he's like, that might be my fucking kid. All right, I'm not going to kill that kid. Because that's what keeps them from killing the, 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 the female's yeah. babies. It's really, why, because they're thinking. I mean, they're really intelligent animals. They have a cerebral cortex that's 40% larger than a human being's. And as a matter of fact, anybody who's listening to this, check out Radiolab. Radiolab has an amazing podcast. The one that's on out this week is called Hello. And it's all about John Lilly and John Lilly's work with interspecies communication. With, oh, okay. You know who John Lilly was? He was a- No, no, I don't know that name. Maniac. 
crazy man. And uh, these other scientists that worked with him actually wound up taking his research and bringing it to some new place because Lily, uh, he was also the inventor of the isolation tank. He created a sensory deprivation tank because he was he was a pioneer. Which you're, you're a fan of, Yeah, right? a huge fan. Yeah. Um, Lily uh, would take acid and set up a tank next to the dolphins, and he would take acid, go in the, the isolation tank, and try to communicate with the dolphins. So while the dolphins would like make all these weird noises, he would like try to decipher those while he was on acid in his tank. And he eventually went off the deep end with like really getting like heavily, heavily into ketamine and all these weird tranquilizers and drugs and became actually addicted to ketamine. And that's when he lost all his funding. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with him when it came to this dolphin research anymore because they knew that he was doing that. And one of the women that he had hired to um, live with a dolphin, they had like an apartment set up uh, where it was underwater. Like it was essentially to her, it was like waist high in water. And she had a dolphin that she lived with for like six months in this and she wound up like jerking the dolphin off is that right because the dolphin would like hump her leg all the time and it'd be really distracting because he was a young dolphin so she's like i mean just take care of that for you and she would just jerk this dolphin off and then you know to her it was like look he's got an issue and it's getting in the way of work so i'll just take care of that but everybody else is like whoa 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 you're doing scientific research by jerking off dolphins like okay yeah i can see that yeah she might need a couple minutes to explain herself man (laughs) But the, the, the podcast sort of focuses on dolphin communication and their, their, the difficulty that they have. Like they know that the dolphins want to communicate with them, but they have that blowhole and that's how they make their noise. So it's really hard for them to make noises that mimic human noises because they don't really have the ability to make M's and T's and all these different Yeah, it's a completely different apparatus, man. Yeah. So... In the, in the podcast, you hear her talking to the dolphin and the dolphin trying to imitate what she's saying. It's crazy. Is that right? It's amazing. You get into, like, when you get into animal communication, it, so much of it becomes semantical or, or an argument of semantics where you'd say, like, well, we're the only thing with language. And people be like, well, you know, actually, X, Y, and Z has something. Okay, well, I, I mean, we're the only thing with complex language. You'd be like, well, you know, some animals are actually able to convey, you know, fairly complex things like that there's, you know, a, a predator above us. And like, well, what I mean is you know, they, they don't have syntax. Right. You know, and you kind of like wind up running out. It's like the verdict's still out, man. There's some, like, animals do convey some complicated stuff. And my two brothers are ecologists, you know, like PhD scientists, and, and they, they kind of hate the conversation, you know, because they, they really resist, not resistant to, but they have a hard time with trying to use our terminology and use our language to describe what animals are up to. Right. You know, like to say for, for you to say that the dolphin eats the bait or doesn't want to eat the baby because it might be his baby. Someone might argue that that animal probably has no comprehension of that, or even that they are not <clears throat> able to equate sex with reproduction. Hmm. They're so intelligent, though. I don't know how they wouldn't be able to equate. That. I don't. I don't either. I don't think they I eat struggle the with this all I the time eat, because I, I really should have said killed. They kill yeah. them. I don't. I don't think they eat them. They might. They, they really hungry, them but they something. kill them. They bite them. You know, I struggle with this stuff all the time because, you know, as a hunter, I'm always weighing out like, well, what is it? Like, what are the things that 
we're after and what are their capabilities, you know? Right. I don't want to fall into some trap where I just act like, oh, it's just like corn with legs, you know? So I do, yeah. I am curious all the time about you know, like the, the, the capabilities of animals. And I tend to be open to the idea that there's, there's like different sets of experiences that different animals have, you know, that some have more, perhaps more of an awareness than others. Yeah. You know, there's like a, there's a hierarchy, if you will. And I think that the consensus is that dolphins are pretty high on that hierarchy. Yeah. Dolphins and orcas, of course, orcas are very high up on that. They, and they eat dolphins. That's what's really fucked up. You know, I've been going through this with my kid, man. He, um, we just moved to the Pacific Northwest, and so I keep talking to my kid about everything's got a killer whale on it, you know, like like stores, grocery stores, whatever, just like a common motif. And um, I kept telling him, it's a killer whale, it's a killer whale. And I know that a lot of people like to call them orcas, you know. And orca is some Greek word, I think just means cetitian, just means whale. It's a pretty generic term. And some people say that killer whale, killer whales used to be called whale killers. Yeah. And whale killer became killer whale. So I'm always telling my kid, oh, that's a killer whale. And one day my kid comes home and he's just madder in hell because he learned that it's not a killer whale, it's an orca. You know, and I'm like, listen, man, I know what I like, I know what the person who told you that is trying to tell you, and I already know that, but I told you killer whale, not because I wasn't aware, because I was trying to circumvent. You know, I was trying to do a, a, a to come back around against what you would in, inevitably learn about its PC name. Oh, I see. You know, <laughs> you were like planning I, I was in like, advance. Dude, it wasn't, the, it, was like, it wasn't that I didn't know. I was just trying to fill you up with just to open you to the idea that that there's the animals get new names all the time, and it's just a PC. It's like a it's like a um what do you call it? It's like a marketing term. Yeah, because orca is a marketing term. It's for not a, killer a whale. whale. <laughs> I mean, it's not a whale. It's a tooth whale. Is it? Yeah. But a dolphin's a tooth whale too, because it's oh, a cousin I of a dolphin. You, I see what you're saying. I thought. Pardon me. I thought you were. Saying that someone wasn't a mammal or something. Oh. oh no, it's it's a it's a cousin of a dolphin, right? You know, I don't know. Like taxonomically, where yeah. is it at? Yeah, I'd be a, I'd be curious. I'm pretty I'd be sure. curious to know. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure there's a crazy video of one kill. They're killing a whale while it's alive. These killer whales are. Biting. That's how most killing happens. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's a. <laughs> I should say they're eating it while it's alive. Oh, they're yeah, biting yeah. chunks of its face off, and it's just so hard to watch. Because we think of these whales as being these beautiful creatures, and we think of, we, I don't know why we have this weird idea of killer whales as being like these really noble creatures, you know? Because I always think of killer whales as being like the friend of man, and that's why when one does freak out at SeaWorld, it makes SeaWorld look so horrible. Yeah. Because in the wild, there's almost no evidence whatsoever that whales have ever killed anybody. Yeah, but he's probably after a while, he's like, what am I supposed to kill then? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I'm a killer. Exactly. I mean, whale. Well, and and the instincts that they have. You know, I was the, the way I always equate it. One of the things I have a problem with zoos in general is that they don't allow animals to do their natural thing. I really think that what zoos should be is get all those motherfuckers together. You should have a giant piece of land. If you're going to fence it in, let them in there and let them run wild. And if people really want to see animals, what they should see is jaguars killing monkeys and the the, the whole <laughs> gamut. And it sounds fucked up, but that's really what the wild is. Because what we're doing by taking these animals and putting them in these weird cages is we're creating these closed-in ecosystems where these animals never have to compete, their food is given to them, and we're ruining their genetics. I mean, those animals that are in zoos, they're completely incapable of ever being reintroduced into the wild unless you take them, and it would have to be some really exhausting effort to try to reintroduce them to the idea of hunting their own food or 
are, ca- are gathering their own food. But those fucking dummies that you have in the zoo, you've created these welfare monkeys. Yeah. You know, these monkeys that just, I shouldn't say welfare, I should say like, they're pets. They're like dogs. It's like expecting your dog to figure out how to go hunting when he's just sitting there wagging his tail waiting for you to open up a can of Alpo. They, they don't know any better. But what zoos use in their defense and you know some people we've kind of gotten away from a lot of people have gotten away from aesthetically so like the bear in the cage kind of display but what zuzari is able to use in their defense is that with cases like the panda florida panther uh, they have they're a genetic reserve right so maybe they're not um maybe they're not ensuring behavior they're not like protecting behavior, but they're at least protecting like the genetic reserve. Yeah, you there's, know? there's a good so that should shit hit the fan for some species. You have that, and there's many many examples of things that you know of wild populations that have been supplemented through the zoo stuff. But I know what you're saying. Like I, I don't like I when I take my kid to a zoo. I mean, we're sitting there looking at this like, I mean, just a pathetic example of a of a grizzly bear. I remember just kind of wanting to look at my son and be like, listen, dude, you're getting the wrong idea. These things are badass normally, you know? Yeah. It's just kind of sad. Have you seen that show, The Hunt, that I told you about? The no, one- no, I didn't see it, but I remember you talking about it. Pretty interesting. I don't think it's I read about anymore. it after you showed it, after you told me about it, because the guy from Metallica was narrating it, and then he got, he, their band got punished and weren't allowed to play at a music festival. Well, they were trying to ban him from so the music th- so festival. So that never happened. I don't okay. think it, it what, what the fuck is his name? Because he narrated not, a show, Hetfield, right? Oh, yeah, Hetfield. James Hetfield. Hetfield yeah. yeah. He's a good narrator. It's interesting. And he's a hunter. He he hunts a lot. And uh, there's a photo of him with this fucking giant bear. Holy shit. I mean, it's a perspective shot. You know, they always put the bear. Yeah, where you get way back. Yeah. But, but this fucking bear is huge. I mean, it's like a nine foot bear. It's enormous. It's, it, it just the. The shoulders on this fucking thing and the head on this thing. It's just this, and he's standing in front of him. People are like, oh my God, disgusting, evil. What they don't understand is if you truly love bears, you got to kill that bear. Because if you don't kill that bear, that bear, those big giant bears are responsible for decimating the population of cubs. That's what they do. And if you don't trim the big ones, if you don't kill some of the big ones, there's a photo of him with the bear. I mean, that is a fucking big bear. Oh, that's bear. a giant, yeah. God. Where was that? Was that Kodiak? That's Kodiak. Yeah, he shot one up there while he was doing that show, apparently. I mean, they are enormous. enormous yeah, you're not, beasts. you're not, you might see, like, someone might see that you killed a big male bear and, and be upset by it, but you're really not impacting the bear population. You know, you're impacting that individual bear, but you're not having any kind of real long-term deleterious effect on the bears of that island which are very you know it's a very stable well-regulated population of bears out there i put in for that tag i think as a non-guided non-resident so like if you want to go with the guide you can go to kodiak and hunt you know you can just go book a trip and go so you just have to pay them and they have a certain amount of tax they allocate yeah it's like tw- i don't know what it is you might pay 25 30 grand for the hunt it's interesting watching but, it, but a non-guided non-resident that's what i always put in for it there's a very limited number of tags for non-guided non-resident which mean that i would have to go in lieu of a guide i get a, like because my brother's a resident of alaska i don't need to use a guide when hunting animals that you normally need to guide to hunt so i can go with him and hunt there and so every other year they do a thing where you can apply for the spring hunt i always put in for that hunt and then when you told me about that show, 
I was bummed because I was like, now the odds of drawing that tag are probably going to, for a long time, go way, way, way down because there's probably going to be a ton of dudes putting in for the permit now. Yeah. I could be wrong. Probably. But I feel like it's going to increase interest, and now I'm like trying to think of a new place to start putting in. <laughs> I've never killed a grizzly bear. I, I, I want to. I really want to one time. Well, you also have a weird thing where you want a grizzly bear to scratch your chest and leave scars. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you say It meant that? a lot more to me when I was single. <laughs> <laughs> that just seems like one of the worst requests ever. <laughs> like a, a fucking giant bear i mean what what is a, a full-grown grizzly way what's the way i mean there's a magical number to get thrown around a lot it's like when people run when people want to say that a bear was huge they say it was a thousand pounds right but those i guess are like if you put a lot of thousand pound bears on a scale they're 800 pounds okay they're 750 pounds 800 pounds you know again that tony russ guy that wrote those books i was talking about has uh He's had a, an immense amount of experience, and he kind of has a passage in there where he talks about like the thousand pound bear, and there just aren't a lot of them out there. As as much as you read, people getting like ten foot thousand pound bears. You, you know, you and I laughed about this before because everyone that sees a mountain lion in the wild always says, um, "Big fucking boar," you know. Yeah. 200 pound boar and i remember like i laughed because you saw a lion and you said it looked like a small one i was like you're the first guy i've ever met that saw a small lion <laughs> i've seen two of them they were both around the same weight the first one i saw was like a dog size it was like 60 70 pounds and the sef- second one it was a much quicker view of them but again it, i thought it was a coyote until yeah. i saw its tail and then I, no- I noticed it had this big bouncy tail it was in santa barbara I was in Montecito driving through a residential neighborhood, and we're like, my wife said it, saw it first. She goes, coyote. And I go, oh shit, look at its tail. And we're like, that's a mountain lion. It was like, so, it was like, yep. in that time, we saw it in the headlights. Couldn't have been more than 70 pounds. Yeah, that's your discerning individual to not have seen a 200 pound town. So there's the thousand pound bear, but that, like, that bear we we're just looking at is a, is a huge bear, but I don't know what he weighs. Well, did you see that video that's been going around lately of a bear that was walking around on two legs? And people were saying, is this Bigfoot? Is this what people are seeing? Because it's absolutely a black bear. And this bear, just for whatever reason, That's decides, how he likes to get around. He walked like a long distance on two legs. Like, it's a crazy video. No, pull, I haven't seen it. Pull that. that video up, Jamie, because it's... The one in the neighborhood, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like walking in this, like, suburban neighborhood, and this fucking bear is on two legs, like a dude in a bear outfit, like Yogi. Really? Yeah, and, I mean, he walks 30, 40 yards like this. So if you were in the woods and you saw this, bear doing that you'd be like i saw a fucking sasquatch i know what i saw especially if it was like dusk you know look at this bear look at him you gotta be kidding me no check him out man pull it pull it from the beginning so we can see the whole thing <laughs> do, it, like do it from the beginning like, like that the new abc news look at this oh yeah man i mean if you didn't know any better especially if it was thick woods and you saw that thing you would fucking swear that that's because a you know what the, the the shots you're looking at right there are often about as long as you see a bear. Yeah, look at him. I mean, look at that. Look at that. That is fucking crazy. That's pretty wild that he you likes would, to get around like that. You would assume that that is a, a monkey. That's an ape. That's look a fucking that bear. It's now, a, does he have a normal gait when he does get down on all fours, or yeah. is he screwed up somehow? No, he was running. Oh, he was? You I saw know, him run on all fours? his paws are injured. Oh, his paws injured. Oh, he might have uh, got caught in a trap. No. No? No. Not both paws. But look, it's like his right paw. It looks what, like his what, right paw is missing. What, what state's he in? New, I think New Jersey. Yeah. I mean, if he got caught in a trap, it's because someone illegally set. Mm. I don't think that's the call. I mean, you can't trap bears. 
in New Jersey. But just the fact that a bear has that ability. Like, can yeah. you trap it all in New Jersey? I don't know what, yeah, there's some fur trapping there, but I don't know to what extent, but there's no bear trapping there. But isn't it possible that he got caught in another animal's trap and that's how he's still alive because he only Never, hurt his paw? There's no trap that would be used for fur-bearing animals now that would cripple that thing to the point where he would do that. If he got caught in a in a foothold trap or leg hole trap, he would pop his foot out of there. Really? I mean, I can't, like, I can't rule out everything. Mm-hmm. If that's what happened to that bear, and I have no reason to think that it is. Um, if that's, if like, if someone came down and said, absolutely, that's what happened to that bear, I'd be like, then someone was doing like an, an illegal trapping activity right. because that's not something that would happen. Is it much more likely? Cause we're looking at a residential like, area I could that clap, stood on something, but like, I could put my, I used to do this when I used to trap, I used to do this all the time is, you know, I can snap my hand in most traps. Really? Yeah. Cause the trap has more of a function of, I mean, this is going to get all, you're going to probably hear from all kinds of your listeners, but. It has a holding function, so it starves them to death. No, not not if you're no, because you you have to check your traps. Oh, so you go there and it's still alive, and then you have to kill it. Yeah. So when I used to fur trap, I would check my traps every twenty four hours, usually in the morning, you know. But anyways, what the trap largely serves to do is hold something, and the way when you rig them, if you do things right. Okay, you rig them with a lot of swivels and things, and so what you're trying to do is really limit any kind of damage to the animal. And this isn't altruistic. The reason you want to limit damage to the animal is the animal's less likely to fight the trap. Okay, if you have a trap that causes that causes like nerve damage, bone damage, numbing. Okay, it's all the more chances that that thing is going to be working harder to get away. And the thinking is, you, the, the, in the ideal case, you're just trying to hold it with a foothold trap. So it That's would try to chew it. its does, way out? Does everybody, they, yeah, people always say chew, but what, what they will do, and I've, you know, I have, I've seen it happen, particularly with muskrats, which have very, very thin bones. There's one who only has one paw. I wonder what happened to him. Where's that? I have no idea. I just typed in bear trap. That's National a high. Park Service. What do you think happened there? Well, that's, that's too high on his leg. To be a trap? Yeah. So maybe that's a shot, a gunshot or something could like that? Could have been. He could have got know. shot. He could have got shot. He could have got hit by a car. Hmm. He could have got, I mean, you know, I mean, things we meet such weird ends and injuries. I've seen bears that I'm fairly convinced on Prince of Wales Island. I've seen bears that I'm fairly convinced had been shot just because of the sort of like wear on the shoulder it happened, you know? Right, like it looked like someone just yeah, kind of hit his vitals. Yeah, like, I, I just be like, I could picture how that would happen. I, I can't say that that didn't happen there, but that wouldn't. That, that's not a trap thing. What I have seen with muskrats anyways, muskrats have very, very, very thin bones. And you'll see where you'd get muskrats that would, in, in trapper parlance, they'll say it would ring out, so it would just twist and get away, you know? Oh, okay, so it yeah. just keeps spinning until so it gets out So people say like a chew out, but <laughs> it's weird because... People who you know, people defending trapping will like to clarify that it's not actually a chew off; it's a ring off. You know? But they're still cutting their own arm off. Yeah, yeah. by spinning around until the tissue. I never off. saw it. I saw it on um, muskrats. I never saw it on larger animals. I never, mm. I'm not not say that it doesn't happen, but again, like like everything, there's a there's a sort of there's good practices. Okay. I don't trap anymore, so I'm not. I don't have like a. When I when I tell you what I'm telling you, I'm just telling you this from 
being a guy who likes to be clear about factual matters. I'm not, I don't have like a real dog in the race on this, so to speak right now, but when, if you follow good practices on trapping, okay, you, it's in your best interest to not have these sorts of things happen that you would set in a way that you don't have incidental catches or bycatch, right? You check your traps on a very tight schedule, you know, you rig them in such a way that you don't cause damage that if you did get something else into your trap, you would be able to release that thing unharmed. But there are people who, for lack of caring, and there are people who just for lack of technical expertise, screw these things up, you know. And oftentimes you could get violations like what would be like a trapping based violation from someone who wouldn't self-identify as a fur trapper, but who just got mad about some bear or whatever getting into his dumpster. And then he takes matters into his own hands, completely outside of the law, and decides to like fix that bear and and inexpertly set a trap for it. You know. Now there are bear traps, right? Those big traps you see in those movies that catch the bad guy in his leg and he's screaming, ah. Yep. Those are real. Those are I mean, they're there used to be a lot of black bear trapping. You know, people used to trap black bears all the time. There used to be some grizzly trapping at a time. People would trap them to sell fur. They'd trap them to get them for, you know, scientific purposes. They'd, they'd trap them to just catch them for pets. They'd trap them to mitigate livestock risk. You know, there's a lot of trapping going on. Right now, bear trapping um, isn't a thing that goes on. Like, there's not, like, there's a bear trap right there. Yeah. That's what so the, yeah, and what's funny now is like, there used to be a lot of bear traps, antique bear traps on the market, but people still manufacture what would what would be a bear trap in order to sell it as a like a, as a piece of mem- like a false memorabilia. Oh, like a flintlock gun. Exactly. Like sell yeah. Like so that. there's a lot of guys that make re- like reproductions of old bear traps that, that there's no like no one's like intending that they're going to go set it for a bear, but people want to have like a lodge. You know, you got like your cabin and you want to have a big bear trap hanging up in it. Right. So there's a lot of bear traps, and you'll see where a dude will think he has something awesome. You know, and he's trying to sell it for a thousand bucks, and you look at it and be like, "I, you can go buy those all day long for one hundred and fifty dollars." It's just like it's not old. There's a, a comedy club in town called the Improv, and the front of the comedy club at one time they've they've abandoned it, but it was a barbecue place. And the barbecue place they tried to make it like with old tools in the wall, like an old saw, like you know those, mm-hmm. those wooden handle on each side, cross cut saws, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and you could look at it and you're like, I know that shit is two years old. <laughs> like I'm looking up, it's all rusty and everything, but I know this is not a fucking antique. They had uh, one of those sickles that you know, like the the death dealer that uh, what do they call it? Grim, De- Reaper. Grim Reaper. Grim Reaper was always supposed to have that was on the wall too. Like you're trying to make it like some farm. Oh yeah, house, yeah, yeah. Wood old timey. Old timey wood walls, like a, a stained, you know, like a like they made it look like it's old and weathered. Yeah, you know the wood, which some of I me mean, this is actually from a hundred year old farmhouse. The wood that we have here, this is reclaimed oak. This it's is nice. from yeah. It's it's I I specifically went out of the way to get old wood because I felt like it'd be kind of cool, you know, because it's this probably some weird energy and some old farm wood. You know, this is like real old thick wood. Oh yeah, no, you know? I like it. I, I have the me and my old man cut down. He's dead now, but when I was in high school, he was building a pole barn, and we cut down an oak on this piece of property we owned across the road from our house. It's a little corner lot, and we cut down an oak. He built the barn, and I took that oak, the logs, and I took them down and put them on a flatbed trailer and had them milled into lumber. Oh wow! 
and then took all that lumber and years later he's been dead since i think 2002 2003 i still haven't finished this but then i laminated all those pieces together into like what looks like chunks of a bowling lane ah and i'm still trying to make a damn desk out of these things oh wow I, I, it's like and i'm actively engaged right now in trying to move one of these slabs from miles city out to washington now so i can continue my now 12 year long project of trying to turn me and the old man's tree so anyways I'm, I'm a sentimentalist when it comes to wood just like yourself oh that's cool so you're gonna make it like a writing desk like where you do your writing i think so oh, i think i'm gonna make a ramp idea. around desk yeah that's a great idea yeah but all the pieces i have together aren't as big as this desk we're sitting at but it's still a nice you know big chunk i have a desk that i bought in 1993 it's a writing desk and it's got two levels like one level it's a very it's old uh it's, it's oak you know but it's like there was a place called the Writer's Store, and there was a store in Hollywood that was just all writing stuff. They used to have like script programs for old school Macs, like you know the oldest computer. I mean, this is 1994 that I got this fucking thing, and I've written everything I've ever written on this one desk. Still now? Yeah, I won't. Really? I won't ever get rid of it. My wife's like, "Let's get rid of this piece of shit." I'm like, "Get the fuck out of here! <laughs> this this desk is going nowhere. It's solid as a rock. It's all oak, yeah. but it's just." There's stains on it. She said, it's disgusting. It's got like coffee. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. This shit's perfect. Yeah. Like as long as it's in my office, you fucking leave it here. It's got the patina yeah. of your uh, sweat and labor Everything on it. good I've ever written is all from that desk. This is one desk I've had and I'm never getting rid of it. I just got this one oak desk that I've had from the beginning of my time here in LA and I'll never get rid of that fucking So when desk. you say that you've written, do you sit down and write? Yes. Stand up? Well, I sit down and write. This is what I do. Most of the time I write, like I used to keep an active blog on my website. But um, when I started writing a book, I got a book deal a few years back and I started writing a book. I stopped writing the blog. And then when uh, the publishers were just fucking trying to, they were essentially trying to get me to write it like stand up. I remember you talking about yeah, this, yeah. So, so I gave them their money back. Which you felt like doesn't work yeah. for a book. Well, I don't like it. Like I've read, I've read uh, like George Carlin's book, which is essentially just his stand up in in book form. And Jerry Seinfeld did a similar thing. I don't like that. I, I, if I'm gonna, if I want George Carlin's writing like that, I want to see it. I want to see George Carlin do his stuff. I don't want to read it. You know, yeah, I don't. No, I'm I don't with you. There's some benefit, I guess, in reading it. There's some. It's good. It's better than nothing. But it's not as good as when I when I write. I'm writing stuff because I know people are gonna read it. You know, so the descriptives are very different. The way it's spaced out is very different. The way I set things up is different. And so um, what I do now is I write as if I was going to write a book or a blog entry, and then I go over it, and then I extract ideas that come out of that. Because I feel like I do both. Like, I'll write down specifically. I'll try to write as a joke, like thinking I'm standing on stage and, you know, set up punchline or beginning premise and then add in the jokes. But more often, I just write. Like, I'll write about something. And then along the way, usually I'm baked. So it's, I get silly. Like, as I'm writing, like, these new ideas will come in. I'll just start You don't laughing. mean writing with characters and stuff. No, no, no. Just no, writing no. as you but talking. I do that sometimes, But you too. write as you talking. I, yeah. I write not even as me talking. I just write. Like, I'll write, like, uh, like I'll pick a subject. Like, um whatever uh, amphetamines p speed you know adderall and i'll start writing about adderall yeah you know and then along the way you know i'll have like a really funny thing will come up in the writing where like like i'm laughing as i'm writing it because it just came out of nowhere don't you feel like you're a really good writer man by the way i really love meteor 
It's a really good book. Oh, thanks, man. It's uh, and it was. Uh, I mean, I knew you're a smart dude, and you're 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 obviously very articulate, but the writing was very is very descriptive. It's very interesting. It's very fun to follow, and when you um, when you write stuff like that. Don't you feel like sometimes, like as you're writing, like it's almost like it's not even you that's writing. Like these ideas just sort of like pop into your head, like out of nowhere, and then you're putting them down. No, I'm. Um, for me, I'm so aware of the process that there's no surprising thing to me. One of my mentors, and one like what I regard as one of the best American nonfiction writers out there alive now is, is a writer named Ian Frazier. And what he was, he, what's his uh, work? He, he's got several books. One of the books I hold up is just like one of the, in my opinion, one of the finest books ever written is his book, Great Plains. Great Plains. Which is about the Great Plains. Um, but he's he's a stylist, you know. He's also, he, he was a humor writer for The New Yorker for a long time. Anyways, I, I had great fortune to, you know, he, he, I don't know if he would use his term, I think he like mentored me in some way or I read his stuff and had the opportunity to hang out with him a handful of times. And he was saying that when he was growing up and he wanted to be a writer, he pictured that writers would be that you're sitting at a desk kind of chuckling to yourself as you, you know, have all these fantastic ideas. But when I write, I get so few words written every day and every sentence that I write takes, I have to write it and rewrite it and rewrite it so many times that there's never a thing where I feel like, um, there's never a thing where I feel like, holy smokes, I nailed it. Because it's, it's so, I almost look at it like if you're building a house, you know, maybe when you get all done with the house, you can stand outside and be like, wow, there it is. I did it. Right. But there's never a, like, there's never a shocking moment mm. because every nail and every board, you know, there's never a chance for where something jumps ahead radically, really quickly in a way that can startle you. Mm. Now, the other night I wrote, my brother's getting married this weekend, my older brother, and I sat down to to make some notes about, um, you know, my best man speech, right? After I wrote my best man speech, it's funny because this just happened to me last night. After I did my best man speech... I felt like, why can't I feel like I, I had it where I got, I was like talking about some funny stuff in my head and kind of writing down notes. And I thought of some way to actually, like you're supposed to do in a best man speech is you're supposed to make it like hit right, like hit the right note, right? Mm-hmm. It's funny and you're dogging on them. And then all of a sudden you turn it, you know, and it's sweet and nice. Okay. And I found that turn to make it sweet and nice. And it's so, and it just struck me as being like perfect, you know? And I was like, why can't the regular writing I do feel that way? That's interesting. Where I'm like, ha, you know, and I kind of want to like pump my fist in the air. Do other people that you know that are writers have those moments? Those those uh, those moments that I'm talking about, where things just pop to you. I feel like they do. I I, you know, one of the things I follow on Twitter is this thing, um, John Winokur, and it's just I don't know how he does it, but six or seven times a day he's got quotes from great writers about writing. Is, how do you spell his name? J O H N W I N. Oh, John Winokur. It's like writers on writing. And I learned more about writing and writers from reading this thing because it's like really cool writers talking about the writing process. I'm sure he's probably hit one just within minutes. Oh, at advice to writers. Advice to writers. Had you... uh, Like here right now, just a couple minutes ago. 
um, or a couple hours ago. When I write, I don't think of the audience. After the fact, I think, well, I hope they like it. So that's like a writer talking about writing. Right. And this Twitter feed hits these quotes all day long. So I learned more about writers, even though I went to writing school and everything, I learned more about writers following that guy's <laughs> Twitter account. And I do gather that some writers are blown away and have fun writing. To me, it's agonizing. I can't stand it. That's the weird thing about doing TV is I love having written, you know, when I write a book, I'm so, it's just like a deep, deep satisfaction. Okay. I love having done it. When I die, if they will, if they chisel writer into my tombstone, you know, I, I'd be very happy. Right. But I hate the act of writing. Making TV is so fun. Just in the moment, it's very fun. Right. I love going out and doing it, you know. But when it's said and done, I don't get that, that feeling like I slayed a dragon like I would get from writing a book. I know exactly what you're talking about. You know. Yeah. You're when you're doing a television show, also it's very different than most TV in that you're out there doing something that you enjoy anyway. Exactly. And there's a lot of people coming in on it. So writing is like me. I mean, sure, you you know, you have I don't mean to in any way discount the role of an editor. And I don't know if you do something similar with your stand up if you show other comedians and stuff, but you have like a role of an editor. So I don't want to act like, oh, it's just all out of your head. You know, my agent I work closely with, he influences things I do, my editor. But in the end, it's like kind of it's your thing, right? TV is a whole bunch of people. So you could go out and have a great thing and then you turn it in and the, and the editor nails it. So I can't go like, I made this amazing TV show because it's like there's the guy that produced it, the guys that shot it, the guys that edited it, right? All that kind of stuff. And so your sense of ownership becomes a little bit different. You're like a stakeholder. And not like the dude that owns the thing. Yeah, there's know? so much going on. There's music. There's the way it's edited. Oh, yeah. Extremely. It, it, it really has a, a massive impact on how it comes off as a, as a piece. It's yeah, like, I think like as a host, you know, as a host, and as a person who has like a, a, a lot of sway in the kind of things we go do, I still feel like, um, you know, I'm kicking in 10 or 20%. And, that's interesting. And 80, 90% is you know, a handful of other people who are throwing in on it. Nobody works harder than people who work on your show. Like those camera no, dudes, like Dodie and Mo and all those guys who have to fucking sleep in tents and in the back of that fucking van where the llamas piss. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, re- I really kind of love it. And I love those guys. It was funny. We just had this guy. We wound up liking him. We had a camera guy come out with us for the first time. And, um, and, and he was just getting beat up i mean it, he admitted it you know and it kind of became the joke where he's saying to Doherty, he's like man you guys got to do a better job of explaining what this is and dan's like i feel like i said it's like rigorous hiking you know and he's like yeah but that like that's not this i thought like like walking on a trail or something you know it's like but there's no language to explain it i don't know why those guys oh, i do know why I think one could look and be like, I don't understand why those guys would subject themselves to that right. level of treatment. Because I've had the opportunity to work very briefly in what would be like network television, mainstream television. And I'm telling you what, it's not typical. What you do. What those guys do and the hours they do it is not typical. Not at all. No. I was shocked to hear, like, one time some guy was coming out with this, and I knew it was going to be trouble because he's coming out with this. He's asking about what the hours are. And I'm like, I don't know. I think, you know, we usually, we'll sleep at night. 
<laughs> I mean, <laughs> 24 hours a day of the hours. It's like, what do I mean, you mean? You, when you're sleeping on the ground in Montana and it's zero degrees outside and you're fucking huddled up in your tent, you're, you're kind of working still. Oh, you know, yeah. Because you would never be there unless they were paying you to be there. Like, it, even though you're off, I mean, still, you're subjecting yourself to sleeping on the ground in Montana in a tent. You're freezing your dick off. Yeah. You know, like, you have to, like, flex and squeeze under your sleeping bag to generate some warmth before you can pass out. You're kind of working. Yeah, like, that, like, Doty, Giannis, Mo, I, 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 they just... Uh, they just uh, they like to be in some way tortured a little bit i think and they also just like to be working you know yeah. i don't i don't think that they but I, the other thing is i don't think they really they're at work but i don't know how much they think about it being at work i see what you're saying i think they just think of it as like existing whoa <laughs> <laughs> Do you know I mean I don't think they go like oh now I'm going to work I think that they think of their lives more their lives don't seem to I don't think they think of their lives as having like it's like now I'm at work now I'm at home now I'm at work now I'm at home I think like at home they're thinking about work stuff and oh uh, okay Do you know what I mean I feel like more they're that they don't look at it like you know punching the old clock is my guess they my sort guess. of well it was funny because Mo and I had a conversation once about another show that he was working on and one of the guys that was on the other show and uh, he was taking great pride. In describing what a coward this guy was, and it was it was fu- not even great pride, but he was enjoying it. He's like he's yellow, you know. <laughs> and he was he was he was talking about it, but it was like here's a guy that's been working on your show for several seasons, and he's fucking uh, undergone some horrendous locations and climbing to the top of fucking mountains while carrying a fifty pound camera and the whole deal. I mean, these fucking cameras are no joke. And hiking, just carrying a gun, hiking is difficult. Yeah, there's all this sliding of the ground underneath you, and you're constantly going up, 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 and you're, you know, essentially like you're doing like little mini squats all day long, and it's exhausting. And these guys are doing it with one arm holding a fucking camera backwards, backwards. It's like that old joke about Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, you know, like she did everything Fred Astaire did backwards, or something. yeah, and right, heels he or led. whatever it was, right, yeah. right. Yeah, you know, most too good though, man. Like. Like we can't like most too good, you know. He's like always oh, he's off doing other stuff, you know. It was like a treat. To, it was like anymore? a treat to have him, but uh, he's we always trying to and but he's just in such demand, you know. What I yeah. mean, he's been a, he's nominated for all these Emmys all the time. Yeah, he won he won an Emmy. He's nominated for an Emmy this year. Well, your show stands out at all. I mean, there's there's hunting shows and then there's your show. And the only show that I've seen recently that does that as well. Have you seen Uncharted, the Jim Shockey show? No, but I know a lot of. I know his stuff. I haven't seen that, but I know that 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 show is a highly respected show. It's really good. But, man. Yeah, it's I, really I've heard Doty was telling me he said it's phenomenal. I watched know? it the other day for the first time, and he was off in Pakistan, and it was really intense because one of the guys that goes with him all the time, his wife didn't want him going to Pakistan. I mean, she was like really scared, and she was like, you know, it's so dangerous there. Please don't go. He's got a wife and kids, and so. He stayed back, and you know Jim Shockey went by himself, and they followed the guy who stayed back going on this trip um, to hunt deer. Uh, and when he went on this trip at home in Texas to hunt deer, you know he was talking about his dad and like he, a real scene, like Is that right? crying, and it was it was really intense. That's great. It was very, very, very intense, but in a way that you you know like a lot of those shows are so fucking bad. Long before I got involved in. TV and outdoor TV, it was like a thing you would always hear is friends of mine, guys I respected, would kind of be sort of dismissing outdoor television as a genre. But the thing was always like, but Shockey's legit. 
or or, or some <laughs> or some such thing. I mean, he's been around for so long, you yeah. Know? But he's a he's a highly respected figure. There's this annual thing called Shot Show, and and I see him. You can't miss him. I mean, the guy's huge, and you know, he's kind of like the last great white hunter, you know. And, um, Cowboy hat all the time. Yeah, I see him, and I you know I always think I'm going to go up and say something to him. I never have. You never but, have? No, no, really? No. Oh, I would I would force myself to. No, I never. I want to meet that guy. And there's there's an amazing thing. Some uh, I mean, there's just some good clips of stuff he's done, and he's uh, he's an articulate guy, and and goes to some cool places, and he's you know he's, you can tell his heart's in the right place, man. I, I, like I think he has an honest, you know, he has an honest affection for for wildlife and wild places for sure yeah for sure he also enjoys the roughing it aspect of it mm. like he enjoys going to these ridiculous remote locations and hunting these very odd animals very exotic animals he did something when they flew into russia and they they took these fucking weird suv things he's off i mean i shouldn't even say suv these weird all-terrain vehicles that look like these military vehicles deep 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 in the mountains like 12 hour drive and just so yeah he's been to some wild places to get some fucking weird ram you know it was just it was really intense it's like it's it was unexpected i just was flipping through the channels and it came on and i'd seen his other show before yep and so this uncharted thing i'd seen all these ads for it but Man, they were in Pakistan, and they were they had armed guards with them everywhere they went. Was oh, that right? Guys with AK forty sevens, and it was like it was pretty intense because it's a fucking dangerous, dangerous place. And he's out there wearing the traditional Muslim garb. He wears like the the, the clothes that those people wear. Oh, okay, really? You don't want to stand out. You don't want to stand out as being a Westerner. Guys like the Green Berets, man. <laughs> yeah. So he's wearing their outfits as he's hunting. It's really intense, and you know they're off. In the fucking middle of, I mean, deep in the middle of nowhere, hunting some ram. That's yeah. great. I'm glad. I'm glad you like that show because it's good to hear, uh, you know, something out there that caught your eye. It's really well done. It's really well done. But there's like that show, your show, and then like you know the rest of them are. There's some of them that look like they're made with like a home movie camera, and it's like a guy who's never even thought about making a show. Well, sometimes sometimes that's true, man. There's a guy. Um, there's a guy I was talking to who makes the hunt show, and one day we're talking. I was shocked to hear that. He's a he's a registered nurse has a full time job at a hospital. Whoa! And he you know and he makes a hunting show. Yeah, he just burns it up, man. He like wow. He's just something he wants to do, and he's gonna double times just finds a way to make it happen. Yeah, it's fucking hard. It's uh, some of them too. It's like there's some of them that are the same show always, which is so bizarre. Yeah, we that's the thing we have a conversation about is is um I wanted to go back and and film next spring. Um, I have a, a black bear permit for this regulatory year, which extends into next spring for Prince of Wales. I wanted to go back and, and Doty was saying, it's like anything that, you know, we did a show out there. I'm interrupting my own story. We did a show out on Prince of Wales last spring and went and found a lot of bears. And, um, and I, I, in the end I, I could have shot a bear and I didn't because I just have this strange feeling sometimes, not strange, sometimes I just want to watch bears rather than shoot at them. So we did a show about that, and I wanted to go back this spring. And Doty was like, "I just feel like anything we could have done out there, we've done, you know." And I went to him like, "Yeah, that's right. We probably shouldn't go and do a show, an episode in the same place doing the same thing." But then the other hand, I'm like, "Bahamut," because some shows all it is, they don't do anything but hunt their like some lease they have for white-tailed deer every single time. Yeah. Yeah, you know? the the whole show is looking at camera photos from camera traps 
and them, you know, talking about the different stands that they have set up, and then them up in the stand with a bow and arrow waiting for a fucking deer to come by. I mean, that is every goddamn show. It's always whitetail. It's always in a tree stand. It's always in the same sort of farmland on the edges of these cornfields, and it's the same show every goddamn week, and I guess people just like watching people hunt deer. Do you enjoy it? I watch, I, I watch them, you know, yeah. every now and then. I like, you know, thinking like, ooh, I wish I saw that deer and I was that close. I'll shoot the shit out of that deer. You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> you think about I have that to way. feel like you'd learn a bunch of stuff eventually yeah. watching it. Yeah, you definitely learn stuff. You learn stuff about wind and placement and the trails they walk and their behavior, like how they, you know, how they can kind of anticipate where they're coming through and how to how to pay attention to their trails. And one of them, uh, w- it was interesting. Uh, it was uh, how to recognize the difference between the doe trails and the the buck trails. The doe trails were going straight across this like this uh, riverbed area where there was a lot of mud. You could see like these does, like large populations of animals going this way, and these like you see these animals that are crisscrossing. Those are those are bucks. Oh, is that right? They're catching the scent. Yep. They're catching the scent of these. these that, does. I, I hadn't heard that. Oh, really? No, it's interesting. That was. So I don't know. Hunting. I don't know a ton about white. I mean, I grew up hunting whitetails. We grew up hunting whitetails, not probably using our heads as much as we might have. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Well, the one we didn't the time need that to, we I went, guess. You know, we got we got deer. Yeah, yeah. The time we went at Doug's farm uh, in Wisconsin, man, there's so many fucking deer. They're everywhere. Yeah. it's crazy. And there, you're not playing. This is a distinction I always make in hunting. Is I try to find those places where you're mostly thinking about animals and not so much thinking about hunters. Well, you focused on that on your show too yeah. though, the difference. Like the one time that you went and you were elk hunting in Montana and you know, you were on your way after an elk and you see another fucking hunter that's doing the same thing. Multiple times everywhere. Yeah. So you spend most of your time wondering about what other guys are doing and then trying to capitalize on that or trying to anticipate the response of animals to that pressure, you know. I so much rather just be like in a one-on-one thing. Next week we're going up to hunt moose up in the brooks range you know and it's one of the you know absolutely the most one of the most remotest places the most remote place in north america and um up there is like there's really no you don't you don't have to factor in effects of other individuals you're just thinking about the animals which is fun and it's very rewarding but it's just not what most people are up against like when i was a kid and we were hunting whitetails we really planned on um people you know, it was very important about where other guys were, what other guys' hunting schedules was like, you know. Um, there's certain guys we knew that, you know, there, there's a guy we knew that would always say, like, if I see your guy's truck coming down the driveway to the farm, I always go over to such and such place because I know that the way you guys move into your blinds, you're likely to bump a deer down such and such fence line. So this guy's thinking about deer, sure, but he's thinking about it through the context of, of, of human activities. So deer being scared by you. Yeah, he's like, you guys area. got that blind down in that area, and I know every time you go in there, you don't realize it because you're a dumbass, but when you go in there, you're bumping deer, and they're going down that fence line. So if I see your truck coming, I'm going to run over there. Wow, that's interesting. Which is the kind of thing. And like elk, when I lived in Montana, we would make, like our opening day plan was generally find out where elk are, where they've been for a couple weeks, and so the people will know they're there. How are they going to leave that area within three minutes of legal shooting light on opening day? And what saddle are they going to use when they pass out of that valley? And you would 
pretty much plan, that would be your thing is I know where they're at. I know that they're going to get bumped probably before legal light. And where are they going to go after that? I got a friend who has for the last, you know, 20 years been killing elk by. He, he knows the spot the elk move into when they get pressured. And he knows that some people can find these elk with spotting scopes and they'll find these elk on this mountainside. He knows that you, there's no way to approach these elk on this mountainside without spooking them. When he sees the elk have moved into this area, he'll watch them with his spotting scope, waiting to see someone else try to climb up and put a move on these elk. When they start climbing up, after, when he goes, that guy sees him, he's going to go try to put a move on him. He'll go down and ambush those elk three miles away from there. Wow. And he waits till someone sees him because he knows where they're going to go. Because so, he knows the path they always take when they yeah. get scared. And he calls it the laundry chute. He said they come spilling through their like laundry through laundry chute. He's been wow. doing it for twenty years. Wow! Uh, I really enjoyed that episode that you did this year in Kentucky. Yeah, that was when you cool. went elk hunting in Kentucky because the situation is very it's very unique in that they've reintroduced successfully reintroduced elk into Kentucky and instead of like what you're looking at a western hunt where you look at these great wide open spaces mm-hmm. and timber and you could see them in the distance, instead you're looking at incredibly dense like southeast sort of uh, kind of forests where these elk are like you were like kind of creeping up on them and like it was hard for the camera guy to get a good view of some of these elk like the elk you shot like there's so many goddamn trees there oh yeah you're just seeing little portions of them it's funny because when that show in the beginning of that show we're standing there in the you know pre-dawn darkness and there's like the eastern forest there's sort of like the cacophony of noise in an eastern forest that you lack in the west. You know, the bugs like, and Yeah, I mean, the biodiversity and... is so much higher, you know. Not on large mammals, but the biodiversity of just stuff. That, is that because of moisture? Uh, pro- I don't know. Quality of soil, moisture. Pro- yeah, I, I would guess moisture has a huge part of it. And probably the fer- fertility of the landscape. Like, like the, you know how nutrient-rich the soil is at some base level probably is what's at play. Because also the Pacific Northwest issues. doesn't have those sounds. And it's very moist. Yeah, you're right. That's why I was confusing. I know guys that would be able to answer that. I, I don't know. I, I know that, for instance, I keep coming back around. Uh, you can tell I'm so excited about our hunt on Prince Wills Island because I know my brother, who is an ecologist up there, um, that that elevation band where Prince Wills Island is, is sort of the, the richest marine environment of anywhere. Really? Yeah. So that that like latitude band is an extremely rich marine environment there. So the fishing as, there must be incredible. Yeah, and just I mean, it's just everything. It's like you, it's just a buzz with life. Are we gonna right? we're gonna fish there? Where there we're there too? No, no, no. If we get maybe there's a possibility, but probably not. So it gets a little bit late. Like fishing peaks like July August is phenomenal. It just kind of halibut. Yeah, but they halibut's so much better in July and August. I mean, we were just up there for my brother's bachelor party and did phenomenally well on halibut. Yeah, Doug was sending me pictures. Yeah, we got some doozies. Enormous. Some, yeah, some nice ones. They're like tables. So, in the beginning of that episode, just kind of standing there and um, and, and to hear that noise of the eastern forest, you know, and then to have it be that you're looking for elk is so, it just feels weird for anyone yeah, Jane, familiar with that Jane animal. pulled up a clip. Pull up a clip so people could hear it because it's pretty cool you in the forest like on your show where you were uh you were e- explaining it and talking about it to distinguish the smell of 
our elk used to be and the smell of our elk are right now. The smell of elk right now seems to have like a warmth to it. It's hard to explain, but you just kind of get a sense. You're like, you'll smell it. You'll be like, that's elk. That's not where elk were. It's where elk are. Here's a spot where game's been bedded. Little beds all over here. It's on. It just makes sense. Yeah, those things are cool looking. It's like a ghost in the forest just yeah. shows up. There they are, man. It's so different. It's so enormous, too. So those things got wiped out of that area by 1820. Um, and you know, like Daniel Boone uh, right there. used to cross over to get down into the Kentucky hunting grounds. He would cross over to Cumberland Gap, which is very near there. And then he would go to you know what was we call the Bluegrass Hills, and that was a more open environment and had a lot of elk and people would hunt and you would hunt the bluegrass hills for elk they'd hunt them for deer and hunt them for black bear selling the meat and hides by the 1820 or thereabouts the elk were just gone okay the buffalo got shot out um elk got shot out deer remained black bears remained mountain lions were shot out wolves were shot out and then they were gone for over 100 years and then when they, they did all that mountaintop coal mining in kentucky and after the reclamation process you know they had chopped down in the construction of these mines they destroyed a lot of of hardwood forests okay like deciduous hardwood forests hickory beach oak all kinds of stuff but when they reclaimed they left all these flat mountaintop areas that they just did in in uh, you know grasses and other stabilizing vegetation not timber and it created sort of this open savanna like environment and people recognized it'd be a good place to put elk and there wasn't a lot of resistance if you went into an agricultural area and decided you know we got a great idea we're going to bring in thousands of seven eight hundred pound herbivores and cut them loose out here you would get a ton of resistance but the area is rural enough and in the reclaimed coal country there just wasn't a, a huge interest in not putting them there and so now they've got the biggest elk herd east of the mississippi there's ten thousand plus elk running around in kentucky but even still elk are, are like 90 percent not recovered you know i mean they were everywhere they were everywhere and the, the weird thing about it is we could have as many back uh, we could totally bring back way more than we have now but you have a handful of interests that, that don't like that. Auto insurers generally don't like it. Agricultural interests don't like it. But it's one of those things that we could fix, like that and the buffalo. The only thing standing between us and restoring buffalo to more of their native range is popular conception, perception of you know popular perception of the issue. The only thing standing between us and reintroducing elk to more and more of their native range is just selling it to the public. Other problems we have. You know, you look at something like acidification of the oceans, people are like, geez, I have no idea. I don't know. what. I, there's no way, right? It's impossible to fix this. It's too expensive, whatever. We don't know the science. We don't understand the science of it. But some stuff, like when it comes to bringing big animals back, oftentimes it's just a matter of do we want to or not. And in Kentucky, there was enough people that wanted to where they made it happen. And now it's a thriving herd. They're even using that herd. They, had, they pulled animals. The Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation spearheaded this thing and provided much of the money and labor for it they pulled animals from 
I can't remember if it was 17 or 20 source sites, moved them into Kentucky. Now Kentucky's a source site for other reintroductions. So they're pulling animals out of Kentucky now and using them to, to, to reintroduce herds in other places where they were extirpated from. Like what other places are they planting it now? They got some going into, I know in Virginia, they're bringing some in. Um, I'm not sure if they brought some into North Carolina, but you know, North Carolina had native herds. It was just an amazing animal. It's so the meat is so incredibly healthy. It's really like a, a, a breast, a pound of chicken and a pound of elk. The elk will have less cholesterol. Yeah. It's healthier for you, less fat, more protein. It's, it's like the best it's the best meat out there, man. As far as eating, like the, the taste of it. See, they still make there's no bad elk. They're just good. Even the big giant ones. Yeah, they're just good, man. My brother killed one one time. He had a really hard. It was just tough. He hadn't aged it, but you need a you know you need like a nice facility to be able to consistently age stuff because if the weather's against you, you can't age it. Like where you know no one's got most people don't have a walk-in cooler where they can go hang 400, 500 pounds of meat. You know and that is what an elk is. Like, so if you get one and it's hot, oftentimes you got to get it into a freezer and it'll age a little bit in the freezer. But anyways, he killed one. Flavor was great, but it was just a tough, tough, tough bull to chew on. Just a big muscular animal. And it's just tough. And um, it was funny because he uh, he started the the only vegetable he was interested in eating. I'm going to tell you this was boiled cabbage <laughs> because he's like, I only have so much muscle power in my jaw, and I can't waste any of my jaw muscle power on anything but chewing my elk up. <laughs> so he would eat boiled cabbage and that elk. and his elk until he got done with it. Until he but ate this all four hundred pounds. Let me, of let me it. tell you a funny story about this guy too. Like his aversion to waste is a buddy of ours got married one time and and his bride's neighbors were out of town for during the wedding ceremonies. The bride's neighbor says, "Well, I'll open my house up." If you got some out of town guests who need a place to stay, because I'm on vacation anyways. So they give this house where it's just like for the groomsmen to hang out. I mean, my brothers were in the, you know, were the groomsmen and some other guys. And so we get to stay in this house. During our stay, he has occasion, my brother Matt has occasion to peek in the guy's freezer and sees in his freezer that he's got an elk he killed four years ago. It's dated from four years ago. And he, he has a moral crisis where he's like, is it worse to steal or is it worse to allow such a beautiful animal's flesh to go to waste when this guy inevitably will declare this freezer burned and throw it away? Like if he was going to eat it, he would have ate it right, three right, years right, ago, three right. and a half years ago. So when we left, he had a bunch of that in his duffel bag and went home and ate it because... <laughs> He couldn't stomach the thought of that animal going to waste. Like his reverence for it is so high that he can't have some. He can't allow someone else to to trifle with it. How many years is an animal good in a freezer? I'm telling you what, man. It depends on the animal. Lean stuff like elk. If you trim away, okay, lean stuff like hooved animals, hooved hooved game animals. If you trim away the fat, which we don't call fat, we call tallow. It's waxy. If you trim that stuff away. And you either seal it with a vacuum sealer and then don't mess with the bag. Like, don't poke any holes in the bag so that the seal stays good and treat it very gently so that the seal stays, so that the seal stays intact. Or you wrap it in saran wrap 
and then wrap it in wax freezer paper. You could not Pepsi challenge that stuff if it was a year old against stuff that was a month old. What about two years, three years? I've four done it years. at two. Two is for me personally the longest out I've gone is two. I've heard of people going more, and at two, when you thought. And you look at it, you can tell something happened to it, but you can trim <laughs> it up and have it be. And I've served old stuff like that to my wife. And the only time it happens to me is if I wind up having something get kind of lost in my freezer. If you don't practice good freezer management. Like I try to do what would be last in, first out, right? But now and then just something happens and you lose track of something and you find some old thing. I've served stuff to my wife that was two years old and she didn't flag it while eating it. You like use her in an experiment? <laughs> no, just do it. Because I mean, she'll call me out. Right? She eats more wild game meat than most people. That, I mean, it's you know, she's wild game meat every night. That's all you when, have in your when house. When we're at right? home, yeah, we just eat game meat. Lately, we've been eating salmon and halibut, which you can't really complain about. But you know, she's eating tons of it. She recently, um, I'm not allowed. I'm trying to get this overturned, but right now there's a moratorium on bear meat. In your house? Yeah. Because you got trichinosis. Yeah, so her <laughs> her and my kids, she said that you will not serve bear meat to my kids. Oh, wow, because of you getting that Because I got the worm, illness. I got worms. But you only get that illness if you undercook it. It's like 150 degrees, right? Yep. Isn't that what it is? And I tried to explain that. So we the, the spring we hunted black bears. We hunted black bears in the Alaska range. I took a guy hunting who you should have on the show at some point. He's a guy named Rourke Denver. And he's a he's just leaving the service now, but he's a Navy SEAL commander. And um he wrote a book called Damn Few, Making the Modern SEAL Warrior. And you remember a few years ago when that movie Act of Valor came out and mm-hmm. it was all active duty SEALs? He's one of the stars in that movie. And um took him out bear hunting. He grew up fishing and liked to fish a lot, hadn't done any hunting. But definitely grew up in the outdoors. And then, you know, obviously over the last 13, 14 years, they've been just, he's been just consumed by training and being deployed again and again and again to, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan. So he hasn't like messed around outside, even though it was very important to him growing up. He just, like I say, he's leaving the service now. I took him out on a hunt and uh, we went up black bear hunting. And in the end, we got on this big black bear and called in with a predator call and he, killed the bear and we walked home it's a big boar you know it's like a six and a half foot boar and i said and we're cutting it up and i'm saying to him on camera i'm like i'm telling you what man if a bear is gonna have trichinosis it's gonna be him and what i'm talking about was montana used to do free uh they used to do free testing for trichinosis so you could send in a they asked for specifically a golf ball sized piece of the tongue and you could send it into the msu and an MSU would send you the results on your bear. The first bear I ever sent in for testing was from a 17-year-old black bear. Whoa. And that bear meat came back positive. Besides steaks and roasts, I had 83 pounds of ground meat off that black bear. It was a big bear. So I send the thing in, and it comes back, and it's positive. And once it's positive, you are excused from wanton waste laws. So it's illegal to waste game meat, okay? You, they, they spell out in great detail what you're obligated to retain on an animal and use. There's some areas in Alaska, for instance, where you know if you kill a moose, you have to bring the liver home. It's specified, like legally, you're obligated to salvage the liver. So they send a thing saying, we're not going to give you a new bear tag, but you're excused, and if you want to discard the meat, you can discard the meat. 
And I was like, there's no way I'm going to do that, right? The only thing worse to me than getting trigonosis was was throwing away this bear meat. So I just got a meat thermometer, a nice one, and ate the whole bear. I went on, I never got another bear tested. And they told me, I read this thing were saying that of these, they did this study in Montana where these two counties in Northwest Montana that have really high bear populations. It's Lincoln County and Sanders County. And they said that they've never tested a bear from those counties that was over six years of age that didn't have trichinosis. <laughs> so trichinosis is just something like you're not born with it, right? You can, you eat infected meat and you contract you know, the disease or, you, you know, and then you wind up having those little cysts, the larva in your muscle tissue, and it just is passed along through consumption. It's the reason you're supposed to cook pork to well done. And now it's not really that, that way anymore because they've gotten it out of domestic pork so much. Cause when they, when they stop feeding pigs, restaurant slop, they really cut trichinosis out. Cause what they realize is when they're feeding pigs, restaurant slop, you're inadvertently giving them rats and mice that are sort of caught up in the cycle of restaurant slop, right? Whoa. And rats and mice are big carriers. So once they got rid of, then once they made it illegal and they had like only the, the USDA inspected pigs are feeding on controlled sources, not stuff from, you know, garbage pails. I used to wash dishes at the summer camp when I was a kid, and every day a pig farmer came and got all the food scraps. And he fed them and he was selling inspected pork. So you can't do that now. So now 90-some percent of the black bear cases, or 90-some percent of the trichinosis cases in the U.S. come from bear meat. I'm explaining all this to Rourke. And the next day, I'm explaining to him another interesting thing about black bear meat, how there's a lot of variability in black bear meat. Some are great, some are not so great. So I'm talking about when I kill a bear, I'm always really interested to get a taste of it to see if we're dealing with if we got gold or, or bronze, right? And we start a fire and it's raining. And we start a little fire and skewer up just some pieces just to sample it. And it's raining and we're feeding it the firewood and everything's wet. And it's just a pain in the ass trying to get it cooked. And eventually I kind of peel this piece apart in my hands. I'm like, yeah, you know, we're cool. We're cool. So there's six of us. We eat it. And I never think another thing about it, right? So... The next day we cooked some shanks, but we cooked the piss out of these shanks. Like we make asabuco braised shanks and cook them for five or six hours, right? We eat a whole bunch of that, eat some grayling, eat some rainbow trout, go home. A month goes by and I get the shits real bad. So, and it's like a weird kind of the shits. So I send a text message to the guys I work with saying, does anybody have like a weird kind of the shits? Cause I'm worried that we got... <laughs> Giardia or something or cryptosporidia from from water contamination and um one of the guys writes back and he says no but man do i got like some bizarre muscle aches you know now yeah well never mind that i'm worried about my shits you know i'm not worried about your problem so a couple days later i remember i'm like crossing the street and i'm like god that's a weird feeling in my back you know and it just got worse and worse and worse and i eventually texted this guy and i'm like what were you saying about (laughs) muscle aches dude and it wound that four of us all had it. And when we started putting it together, it was like, we all have the same weird thing, intense muscle pain in our calves, intense muscle pain in our necks, fevers. And we haven't seen each other for a month. And we all got sick on July 5. So it was like, this isn't a, the common cold. So there's an incubation period. A month. What happens is you eat. The only thing that can liberate those larvae, from their cysts is stomach acid. 
So when you consume the meat, your stomach acid dissolves the the thing and liberates the larva. And, and you got boys and girls in there. And it takes them forever. It takes them weeks. They build up their numbers. You know, they get kicking ass. Then they get into your bloodstream, the larva do. And then about a month into it, the larva start burrowing out of your vascular system and getting into your muscle tissue Whoa! when they start setting up shop. Oh, my God. So the CDC gets involved in this. Um, I was now in Kings County, okay? <laughs> they sent me a thing recently where <laughs> no one in Kings County has had – well, like last year in the whole country, there's like 11 or 12 cases of trichinosis in the whole country. No one in Kings County had it in four or five years. The last guy that had it, um, I think a guy in, I think a guy in 2007 or 2011, I can't remember which. Where's Kings County? The Seattle area. So. Yeah, he had it from making uh, homemade mountain lion jerky. <laughs> like Jeez. the only guy. So they're wow. all excited, and they want me to give him a piece of the meat. And I give him a piece of that meat. They come in a car, and I like go down and hand him a shank off this bear. And I told her, I said, if you eat that, cook it, you know. And um, she tests it, and they get back to me a while later. And that thing had 868 larvae per gram, which is something like 460,000 larvae per pound. Oh, my God. There's these blown-up images of it, and it's just like, it's just larva. So the whole meat is just infested. It's just infested with so larvae. That bear must be in misery all I don't the know time. what he's thinking. But, <laughs> I, but I'm fine now. So... Out of the four of us to get sick, I'm the, I go down and they say like in severe cases, you know, if it attacks your pulmonary system, if the larva attack your heart, there's you take it. There's a medication you take. Well, I said, well, I'm just gonna take the medication, you know. And they're like, well, you know, you might not need to. I said, well, I want to go take it. I go down. And that medication is twenty four hundred dollars. Even with health insurance, it's eleven hundred dollars to buy the medication. So the other guys are like, well, I'll just wait and see what happens to you. <laughs> we all get better at the same time. And that medication only kills them in your stomach, right? So for six to 10 years, depending on your source, if you were to eat me undercooked, you would contract trichinosis. Whoa. So I don't know if that means I have 868 larvae per gram. I just have a hard time fathoming that. But we're all positive. Like we're positive carriers. Wow. So you right now have those things in your muscle tissue. That's my understanding. And I read a lot about this, as you can imagine. Like you get, I, I was very curious about. I didn't know. I always thought when you got trichinosis, you died. Kind of. I didn't know. I thought. I don't know what I thought. I've been writing about this and talking about this on TV for ten years, telling people. And by the way, make sure to. But you know, they say like familiarity breeds complacency. You know. I, I thought it was contempt. Is that what it is? Yeah. No, well, then that's my new saying. <laughs> because I felt like, I don't know why. I can sit here right now and picture the piece of meat that I'm sure got me sick. Wow. So, I don't know what I was thinking, man. So that's I was supposed all to think, in my wife, body? My wife's like, it's so embarrassing. She's like, you're supposed to be like the meat eater. And you, I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, you know what, though? And I was embarrassed. And it's embarrassing, right? But at the same time, I'm like, you know what? Where do all the mountaineers die? They die on the mountain. You yeah. know? 
So it's not like, oh, you should be the last guy to die in the mountain. You claim to be this big mountaineer. It's like, well, you know what? Exposure. I don't know. I, you know, living on it, That's just my way of hiding the fact that it was like really stupid. It was a stupid thing to do. And on one hand, I remember Doty saying, are you sure you want people to know that this happened to you? Because isn't it kind of embarrassing to you? And I'm like, yeah, it's embarrassing to me, but I'm just going to talk about it. Cookie bear meat. So, she, yeah, my wife's like, no way. We're just done with the bear meat thing. And my brother, at my brother's wedding, we're at his rehearsal dinner, we're doing all wild game for his rehearsal dinner. So I had smoked up a ham off this bear that I'm going to serve at his rehearsal dinner. He says, don't tell anybody about the worm deal <laughs> because it'll turn them off to the whole damn meal. And I said, well, I got to, I feel now like I'll have to say this has been cooked, but FYI, I got trichinosis from eating this bear uncooked. And he thinks that he's just like, I'd rather you not serve it than serve it and bring it up. Whoa. Because I think you should serve it. And in the end, I decided not to serve it at his wedding. I would have eaten it as long as it's cooked to 150 degrees, especially smoked. I know people aren't it, like it People forever. aren't like that, man. People aren't like that. I smoked that ham from that pig that we shot. And uh, I Cooked did it, it to finish your in your your method with the the brine. Oh my god, it was some of the best tasting meat I've ever had. It was unbelievable. I'm telling you, man. And that son of a bitch probably has. I mean, not not probably, but there's a very good chance he's got it. They eat yeah. meat. Yeah, yeah. It was so tender and delicious. But I've cooked a bunch of it. Just just put it on the grill. Just seasoned it and put it on the grill. And it's uh, amazing how tough it is. Yeah, it you can be tough. Shoot through that shit. But it tastes you have good. A, did you get a grinder? Yeah, I got a grinder. Yeah. yeah, I got a grinder for the venison after uh, Wisconsin. Callan and I, we made buckets of uh, hamburger meat. That's good. Oh, it's so and good. And you can, you can grind up that wild pork, too. Yeah. I'd be curious just to take a piece of that wild pork and send it in and see if, if it has uh, if it has trichinosis or not. Do you want me to? I'll send it in. I don't know. I mean, what is that? I don't know. What would you do with the information if you knew? Uh, make sure I did what I'm already doing, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I when I cooked it, I cooked it, uh, the smoked ham, I cooked for like fucking 10 hours or something crazy. Yeah. It took forever. And you get it up to the right temperature. Yeah. Some people even say, like Harold McGee's Science and Lore of the Kitchen, or Science and Lore of Cooking, whatever it is, it's a great, it's like the science of food and food cooking and ingredients. It's a phenomenal reference book. In there, he says it seems to be, I, I think the, it was in his book, he says it seems that there's evidence to suggest that freezing kills it. Though the USDA still sticks to that guideline of, of cooking temperature. But hmm. that like prolonged freezing kills it. But a couple years ago, a couple guys got trichinosis from walrus meat in Alaska. <laughs> fucking walrus. Yeah. So, however, that son of a bitch got it. But he's the walrus had it. And they think that there might be this worm is Trichinella spiralis, I think is his name. I got pictures of the thing on my phone, the, what the worm looks like. So, um, that there's northern, they think there might be some northern varieties in walrus and polar bear that are less susceptible to freezing. Hmm. And that perhaps that, that freezing is not to be relied on when killing these worms. That it's a different northern variety that's just got more tolerance. And again, man, this is just something I read. Who the I, fuck is eating polar bear and walrus? Well, wow, people like walrus. I, really? I, I'm, when I, there's a guy, you know, it's funny, I've never had it, but I've been arranging to have some because I drew um, a muskox tag for Nunavak Island this winter. And when you hunt Nunavak Island, if you draw that tag, you have to hire what's called a transporter because the only place to land is a Mikaruk on Nunavak, and it's a native village. Okay. 
It's an Inuit or Eskimo village. And these people, like your transporter can't do guide services. Like he can't tell you where an animal is, but he's like provides transportation. So you rent snow machines or however you're getting around and he'll give you a place to stay when you're on the island. It's called a transporter. The transporter that I'm using is a walrus hunter. So they're protected by the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Okay. So like white guys don't go hunt walrus, but natives who aren't administered by the Marine Mammal Protection Act have their own self-governing body called the Walrus Commission. And I think the Walrus Commission, I can't remember, it's meets in Nome or Kotzebue. And the Walrus Commission will make decisions about what walrus harvest different coastal villages are allowed to have. And out there on Nunavak, those hunters out there will periodically go and hunt walrus. And the guy I'm using as my transporter goes on the walrus hunts. So I've been encouraging him to make sure to have some that I because I'd like to eat it when I come out and I'd like to do a thing about that and hang out with this guy and eat walrus meat and he's gonna says he's gonna make sure to have some on hand. And are wal- walruses like when when you you hunt a walrus like you're allowed to eat the meat but you're not allowed to hunt it. So but you, someone could give it to you. Could you bring it back? I don't know about you can't bring the ivory back. I don't know about transporting the meat. That's a good question. But yeah, I could go into his home. And I don't even know the extent of it, but I can go into his home and he can serve me a meal. Just like people might go up to Nome or whatever and sample muktuk from a whale, you know. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I don't, I, I know, I'm fairly certain that he could not give me the ivory, you know, because there's like the, the ivory band. So ivory has to have a cultural marking on it. You know, you're supposed to turn to artwork. Uh, so a lot of times, you know, like sea otters were nearly extirpated in some places like regionally extirpated by the fur trade, particularly when the Russians were had a strong presence in Alaska. And now sea otter numbers are, you know, really recovered in a lot of areas. But still for natives that are allowed to trap sea otters, they can't just sell the pelt as a pelt. They have to do something to it to make it a cultural item, at which point they can exchange it for money. So if a native hunter kills a walrus, he can do scrimshaw on that tusk, you know, and, and that puts that tusk in a different legal framework than it would as raw, what they call raw ivory. Hmm. That's fascinating. So I know, but yeah, he can serve me a piece of walrus meat, but I don't know what, I don't know what laws govern me walking away with some. I have no idea. Now seals, they eat seals as well. Yeah. And they're allowed to hunt and eat seals. The, uh, the natives and the Inuits. Again, it's again, it's self-governed. I watched uh, Bourdain's show, and he was with this uh, Inuit family, and they were eating a seal, and they they butchered the whole thing. Like, yeah, almost. that was in northern Canada, right? What's yeah. The, what's, there's like an autonomous, sort of like an autonomous zone there. The name escapes me right now, but yeah, I know what you're talking about. And they were eating it raw. Yeah, and you're, that doesn't have trichinosis. Apparently. I have no idea. Or I don't know if people were surprised to hear that walruses had trichinosis. What does a walrus eat? Well, they eat a lot of you know clams, crabs. They eat a lot of, I, I just don't know enough. I don't know enough about how that thing got it. I don't know enough about whether what kind of sea animals have that stuff. I mean, was he eating a chunk of polar bear that he found frozen? On, I have no idea. Right. I would love to know. When I had Lyme disease, I did tons of... I, I could have gotten an honorary PhD in Lyme disease after having Lyme disease. And then when I got trichinosis, I started reading everything I could find about trichinosis. But then I just got better one day. That's wild. So and I, quit read, I quit reading about it. Just You just felt better. Just it went it away. Six, seven days. One of the guys that had it, he was running 103.9 degree fever. 
Whoa. For six days. And they're checking him for like dengue fever, West Nile virus. He had no idea to even bring this up. One of the dude's girlfriends is a doctor. And she says, finally, I think you boys got trichinosis. I go into a doctor. I'm like, here's what I think I got. And they didn't know. They didn't know what the hell I was talking about. Well, tw- you said 12 cases a year in the entire country? Yeah, they never see it. And there's four of you. One of them asked me how to spell it. One thought I was talking about a venereal disease called trichomoniasis. <laughs> <laughs> but I eventually convinced them, man. Just like when I had Lyme disease, I walked around having to convince people that I had that. Well, Lyme disease is really common, it's though. Super common. That's a, that I don't understand. But it just depends on what that, per- what that particular, I'll use the term, what that particular healthcare provider has run into. And you go in and say, like, oh, I'm not feeling so hot, you know, and this and that. I think I got Lyme disease. It's just, like, not, you they know. Didn't yeah, I think you. if you're in Hudson Valley, New York, you're going to walk in, they're going to be like, hell yeah, you got Lyme disease. But in some places, they're going to be like, eh, I don't, know, you, I don't know what you got. Isn't it weird when you talk to some doctors? I mean, there's doctors that are dismissive of things, like mm-hmm. real dismissive, and then it turns out that you were right. Yeah. That's got to be infuriating, isn't well, you know, it? So the, <laughs> that's what I ran into, and, I, and I've told the story a thousand times, but when my boy... We got trick. We, no, thank God he didn't get trichinosis. He got Lyme disease. He and I got Lyme disease at the same time fishing bluegills. And he, we're at, I was at my mom's in Michigan. My mom comes up. She was swimming with the boy. My mom lives on the same lake I grew up on. And she was swimming with the boy down on the lake. And she comes up and says, why is his belly button all red like this? And I'm like, I, I can't tell what happened there. And it turned into one of those bullseye rashes. My wife, I send my wife a text image. It's like a text message picture of this thing. And my wife right away is like, I wonder if he's got Lyme disease. It looks like one of those bullseye rashes. They talk about Lyme disease. So she tells me, send it to his pediatrician. Because I had him at my mom's. You know, she wasn't there. She's like, send it to his pediatrician. I sent it to his pediatrician. Be like, we're worried about what he's got Lyme. She's like, well, just keep an eye on it. But you don't keep an eye on those things because those things just go away. Like, they don't last forever. Right? So all of a sudden, then it's gone. But clearly, he had it. And so then we wind up going down there because then he gets another one somewhere else and we go down and we're like we're really concerned he's got Lyme because he gets this bullseye rash and they're like well where is it i'm like well it's not there now but it was there and he keeps talking about this that and the other thing different symptoms he's having we take him in three times each time bringing up i fear that this is what's going on with him when we pull him out of the bathtub for whatever reason in the hot water he's got these damn circles all over him but they kind of go away you know Eventually, he's got Bell's palsy. He'd take a sip of milk, and his milk would run out the corner of his mouth, you know? And we go in there like, holy shit, he's got Lyme disease. And at this point, it's been going on for weeks, you know? And what's funny is this place, his pediatrician has a newsletter, and they had a newsletter article that was about Lyme hysteria, about how everyone's so hysterical about Lyme, being like don't really need to worry about it you know everybody's getting hysterical about lime like it's the new bogeyman you know so in this altercation we have with the pediatrician i'm like i feel that your lime hysteria thinking and your lime hysteria article kind of colored your impression of what i'm telling you when i when we're coming and you're telling you we had to self-diagnose our child at which point they said, I want to have someone else in the room during this discussion. <laughs> you know? they, they said that? Yeah, because we were pissed. Well, you easily could have sued the shit out of them if you were so inclined. Well, yeah. I, listen, and, and I don't wonder around thinking that stuff, but I mean, I I was like, I entertained all kinds of ideas if he didn't get better. But he, he responded so quickly to medication. The uh, But it was unbelievable. And meanwhile, I had all the same stuff, and I thought it was psychosomatic. I wound up having to do the... 
intravenous stuff. You know, Doherty, he was real. He was in the hospital with Lyme well, meningitis. Well, when I ran into you last time we went hunting together, you were really skinny. And I was like, dude, you look like you lost a lot of weight. And then I lost told, a ton of weight during all that. You told me the whole story. I was even it. trying to drink like like milkshakes and stuff like I was like down at GNC trying to like do stuff and <laughs> weight the guys, gainer all that stuff. Yeah, I had the guys some wilderness athletes sending me like um, I was just trying to anything I could do to put on weight. Wow, there was uh, that, it knocked my dick in the dirt bad, man. I bet yeah. I've heard nothing but horror stories about people getting Lyme disease. Nothing but horror stories. It's just it, and then not only that, your body doesn't really ever get rid of it, right? No, it's unclear, you know. And if you like the the medical the established scholarly consensus on Lyme, I think is still this, that there's no such thing as chronic Lyme is what they'll say is what, when I say they, I mean like the, the medical establishment will say that, that chronic Lyme doesn't exist, that there's Lyme disease. And when you go through treatment, like what I did, the, the 28 day intravenous deal, they put a line that goes in your arm up to your heart and you inject these syringes in it. Like when you get done with that, you do not have those bacteria in your body anymore. If you go to a Lyme specialist and you tell Lyme specialist, I have chronic Lyme, I met one. I tried to get in to, to see one of these Lyme specialists, and she said categorically, I don't see Lyme, chronic Lyme patients. I see acute Lyme patients. And I had already done one round of antibiotics, and I got worse during the round of oral. And she's like, oh, you're chronic Lyme, meaning like, oh, it's all in your head. What? So I go to another infectious disease person. I was talking to them, and they said, well, it's like it just seems kind of it's an urban, chronic Lyme's an urban legend. My finding wound up, in some way bearing out what she said would happen where I finished the stuff. I, f- I think I got done with it sometime in September and by November, my symptoms were gone. That's me. My boy got better, but I've met, I've since then met other people who are very credible individuals, you know, who are not hysterical people who've been through various rounds of treatment and they're not getting better. <sighs> the arth, like the arthritic stuff and Lyme's such a weird thing. Like with my kid, you can't argue with Bell's palsy. It's just right there. But other stuff like... For folks who don't know what that means, it's paralysis. Yeah, facial paralysis. Yeah. I mean, he had like bad facial paralysis. So you can't argue with it, right? It's just like glaring. And that's one of the key... That's one of the, the bullseye rash, Bell's palsy. But there's all these other things like uh, arthritic pain, okay? Um, fatigue. They now think... A lot of people think that all the time they were diagnosing chronic fatigue syndrome was people with Lyme's. People with Lyme disease. My friend's dad got it from the from getting vaccinated they used to have a vaccination against lyme disease but the problem with it a small percentage of the people that got that vaccination would have some genetic marker that would make them predisposed to getting fucking lyme disease from this vaccine so this guy was terrified of getting lyme disease gets a vaccination against lyme disease got lyme disease from the vaccination and then they stopped making the lyme disease vaccination So this poor guy has fucking Lyme disease, and he's still fucked up. He's an old guy. It's her dad, and he's you know he's jacked from this fucking vaccination. I haven't checked this from multiple sources. I just heard this or read this. That um, a couple of interesting facts about Lyme is when when my son and I both got it. I remember being like, "What are the odds?" Because you'd read that one or two percent of ticks carry Lyme. So I'm like, we would have had to have been covered in hundreds of ticks for both of us to have. You know, statistically, for both of us to have gotten it without even seeing any ticks, like how could this be? I later read that in that area in New York, in that area in Hudson Valley, they've done some stuff where sixty or seventy percent of the ticks have Lyme, and they used to chronicle thirty thousand confirmed cases 
you know, every year. I think last summer they were close to 300,000. Whoa. It's just blown up. And it's not so much that it's blown up in new places. It's just that it's becoming like much more common in other places. And isn't you know, there a direct correlation between overpopulation of deer and, and these ticks? Some people say that because it's like in that thing's lifespan, you know, it gets on deer. But I've heard other things that even just like rodents, you know. Uh. So like like smaller furred animals. I'm not really clear on that, man. I don't really know. I know that, that when you look at places that have it, you look at places that have a lot of deer, but I don't know if, if you had a third as many deer, if you'd have higher or lower, or if you'd have necessarily lower infection rates, I can't answer that. But Doug Duran, who you know, he I think last summer twice he got put on the, the immediate antibiotics because right now when you find one of those ticks buried in you, if you go into a doctor and if you're not weird about medication, the doctor's just going to give you a super heavy dose of antibiotics that kills it before it gets a hold of you. If you wait like I did, it gets into your nervous system. So I even had, uh, I even had for a day, I had amnesia where I'm sitting at my desk and I get up to do something and I sit back down and I didn't know who wrote what's on my computer. Whoa. I started, I knew I had to write about a subject because I knew that before the amnesia kicked. I lost the whole day. I lost like eight hours of time. And I knew that I was supposed to write about a subject. And here was a thing on my computer about that subject. I started taking sentences. And or at first I took a big block, like a paragraph of text, and put it into Google to try to find how I cut and paste, how I managed to cut and paste an article on the subject I was supposed to be writing about into a Word document. But there's no match. Then I just start taking like little blocks of words in quotes and there's no match. I'm like, this is not from online. Then I start thinking that one of the guys I work with, I thought this guy, Jared Andrew Canis, who was near there, who works at ZPZ. I started thinking that he somehow is playing some joke on me where he came and wrote about what I was supposed to write about. On my desk, I also have a book, one of my favorite hunting books called Hunt High by Duncan Gilchrist. And on it, I had written uh, Mark Boardman, Vortex Optics. Okay. I look at the book. I know the book. I know who Mark Boardman is, but I can't imagine why Mark Boardman's name would be on a sticky note on that book. And I look at my other hand, and on my hand, I have LOP written. And LOP is a term length of pull. It's a firearm term. And a guy wanted a length of pull off a firearm. And I wrote LOP on my hand. I looked at my hand, I'm like, I didn't know who put that there, how long it had been there, what it meant. And I tried to get home and couldn't get home. You couldn't figure out. I got on the wrong train, got off at the wrong spot. We were living in Brooklyn, got off at the wrong spot, came up, recognized a sport, recognized like a sporting goods, like a sports place called, uh, I can't remember, it doesn't matter what it's called, like a sporting goods place. And um, called my wife and told her that's where I was. And then all of a sudden things started making more and more and more and more sense. Wow. Dude, it was wild, man. That's I thought I was dying. I thought I was dying. We did uh, an episode of that uh, Joe Rogan Questions Everything show on Morgellons. Morgellons is this disease that most doctors dismiss. They think that the people that are per- per- saying they have this, that there's something wrong with them psychologically, that they have some sort of a psychosomatic issue, and that what they're really doing is scratching themselves until they create these abscesses. Gotcha. And, and then sometimes even putting things in their skin and then claiming that these things have been growing out of their skin because they found like carpet fibers and stuff in their skin that these people have sent in. 
Uh, but then um, when we went to these uh, conferences where these people would meet that have this Morgellons issue, you realize you're, you're also talking about some seriously educated people and some of them that are doctors. And one of the doctors that we talked to said there is a direct correlation between Morgellons disease and people who have Lyme disease. Oh, is that right? And what he said is, very intelligent guy, so he wasn't a nutter. And what he said is that he believes that there's a neurotoxic effect uh, that you get from Lyme disease, from some strains of Lyme disease. Because the way he said was, if you look at Lyme disease, he goes, you're not looking at, like, if, if a tick infects you, you're not looking at just Lyme disease. But it's possible you might have gotten 10 different things. Oh, yeah, from man. I learned about a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And that one of those 10 different things is causing this neurotoxic effect that literally is making you go crazy. Yeah. So when these doctors are examining these people and they say, oh, they're crazy, they think that carpet fibers are growing out of their skin. No, they have Lyme disease, and the Lyme disease, along with all this other shit, is causing this neurotoxic effect, and that is what's making them think that there's something wrong no, out of their skin. So it's not that they're just crazy, it's that they have a disease that's making them go crazy. And that was pretty illuminating, because this guy was talking about like seeing things, like th seeing like worms underneath his skin of his oh, eyes really? when he was looking yeah. in the, the mirror, and he goes, and I knew... It wasn't there, but I'm seeing it anyway. And he goes, I could feel it moving across my eye, but then there was nothing there. And he's like, and it was pretty clear to me as a doctor that there was something going on with my mind yep. that, that had a direct correlation between this disease. So all these people that have this Morgellons, they also have this Lyme disease. You know, I don't know if, if Dan Doty told you about this, but he all of a sudden has this excruciating neck pain. And he goes down to an emergency room. This is the same time this is going on with me. He goes down to the emergency room. It's like, oh, he got like, they give him some muscle relaxers or something. And he comes back home when it gets worse and weirder. He goes down to another place and they tell him the same thing. He got a pinched nerve. And, and we're text messaging about, I was like, hey, what's going on? You know, how you feeling? And I remember that when I was finally talking to a, a person who knew about Lyme, they kept telling me to move my neck and see if it hurt. And I told Dory, I said, you know what? When I was down there, they kept asking me to move my head, and does my neck feel weird? Go down to that place. So he just leaves his one doctor, takes a cab down to this place where I had gone, and they admit him, and he had meningitis. Was spent, I don't know how, you know, four, five, six days in the hospital. Whoa. Wound up with the pick line. And meningitis from Lyme, Lyme disease? meningitis. Whoa. Because in your, in your, you know, like an infections in your spinal fluid. I have a friend who died from that. Died from meningitis. He went to the hospital, went into the emergency room, and he was, uh, he was a comic. And he was, he's one of these, he was real busy. He was like, fuck this place. They're making me wait too long. I'm leaving. And he got out of there, got on a plane, flew to Hawaii. When he got to Hawaii, he was dying. Is that right? By the time he got there, it was too late. I was, yeah, I was scared because I remember, but there's, I guess there's different the forms is but anyways his they did a spinal tap and you know he was all messed up and meningitis is some scary now he's shit fine. i've had some of the weird in the last three or four years i've had just some of the weirdest like freaky health things but they're parasites like yeah, almost everything man. that you've had giardia yeah. or something i got a colon infection from water and, and that then, was um, from the other show right that was from like the wild within no i was doing meat eater so I had, I, I like, I got really bad poison oak and was on steroids for that, but also got some kind of waterborne parasite. And then the steroids combat your ability to fight infection. I went up in the hospital, went up like shit in my own couch. <laughs> so my wife's like, 
my wife's like listen you know there's nothing now she's like i felt bad about like having you be there when i was having babies she's like you got i got you got nothing on me now that's man. hilarious shit your own couch so i couldn't even tell when it was happening you know wow i thought oh man again i thought i was gonna die so anyways <laughs> i just had like just the weirdest stuff and Doty, I, I keep i keep that. bringing up Doty, but Doty's like you need to go to a shaman because <laughs> he thinks that there's something like i need to have like like there's some sin i committed against the universe or something and it's oh. like he thinks i need to go to a shaman to get right Doty did too much dmt <laughs> he did too much dmt trust me you, you can do too much you you got to be careful with that fucking ayahuasca. Yeah, th- that's hilarious. That whole shaman thing is is a, is a real trip. You know, the, the whole going to the jungle and taking that medication and having these spiritual experiences. It'll get you convinced that everything's all tied together and that somehow or another you've committed some sort of a sin against the universe. I, I, I got to I got to let you talk. To him. I can't even. I don't want to speak for the boy. I've already talked about him too much. I think Dodie. Yeah. Yeah. No. Well, Dodie and I had a long, extensive conversation about his ayahuasca experiences. Yeah. And I've never done ayahuasca, but I've done DMT many times. I did it again recently. Did it last weekend. And the the DMT experience is, is essentially what ayahuasca is, is an orally active version of DMT okay. because the Amazon shaman and the people but it's, that, it's that, derived it's from two different plants. Okay, well, what I, it is, I don't know the first thing about this stuff. DMT is dimethyltryptamine, and it exists in thousands of different plants. And the reason why you don't get it, like you don't get high when you eat it, is because your stomach produces monoamine oxidase. So monoamine oxidase, um, what you need to do is take an inhibitor. So that you could get it in an orally, an orally active form. So most of the time, when most people get DMT, what they're getting is the synthesized version, where they've taken um, uh, Scotia viridis or all these different plants, they've uh, extracted it down to the DMT, and then you smoke it. Um, and what they do in the Amazon is they it's figure, regulated in the U.S. or not? It's illegal. Oh, Schedule okay. one. Yeah. The issue with Schedule one, with with it being a drug, though, is that it exists in so many different forms. You would have to make grass illegal. I got Like you. if you had Phalaris grass growing in your front lawn, you essentially have uh, a schedule run drug growing on your lawn in massive quantities. So it can't be enforced. It's a weird, but, but if they find the powder, if they find it synthesized and turned into a powder that you could smoke and freebase, then it's illegal and then it's a schedule one drug. But it exists in your own human neurochemistry. It's like making saliva illegal. Yeah, yeah really, I'm with you. Literally that ridiculous. Um, the Amazon shaman have figured out a way to take the vine of one plant and the root and the uh, leaves of another, and they boil them together. So essentially, they use harmine, which is a natural MAO inhibitor, and they combine it with this plant and they boil it into this potion, and that's what ayahuasca is. So it's DMT and an MAO inhibitor together in this elixir. You drink it, and you have what's close to the smoke DMT experience as you can get, uh, but not quite as potent. But it's not. It's not. There's not a synthetic version of ayahuasca. No, no. Well, uh, like it, it's all extracted from plants. Like DMT has is not like a, they don't produce it in labs. I think you can produce it in a lab. Oh, okay. I think you can, but the precursors of it are very tightly controlled by the DEA. Like yeah. you can't. Like if they found out that you were buying a certain amount of this chemical that you would use to make the synthetic version of it, they would flag you. Gotcha. But the plants are legal. So you could go online. There was a guy that got arrested, and they took all of his money and locked him up in jail. Because it was thing, I think it was called Happy Frog or something like that. One of the, the name of his company. I don't remember the name of his company, but he sold all these legal plants. 
but the plants were all totally legal, but he sold them with the pretense that you could take these plants and extract DMT from gotcha. them, and then he was uh, he was arrested for that. Because he was putting A and B together for you. Yeah. He, well, he was allowing you to find the source to do it yourself. Yeah. But even though what he was selling was legal, I think he got off. I'm t- kind of speaking out of school here because it was a few years back, and I didn't totally pay too much attention to it, but it it is in so many different sources. And it's a hallucinogenic. Yes. It, well, it's a human neurotransmitter and an inc- incredibly potent drug that's also the most transient drug ever exist, or uh, one of the most transient drugs ever um, observed. So if you get, like if say if you smoke DMT, like I, I did it, like I said, last week, you're blasted to the center of the universe for about 15 minutes, and then you're back to baseline. Like you're completely sober in 15 minutes. Because your body knows exactly you what to do with it. Yeah. Your body knows exactly what to do with it because it's it's such a normal part of oh. your your chemistry that your your body can bring it back to baseline within minutes. It's weird. It's the weirdest shit ever. And the weirdest aspect of it is while you're blown out, like blown out in this intense psychedelic state, you immediately think, "I'm here all the time. I've been here before. Oh, I, know right? what, I know what this is. It does. It's not unfamiliar. It's completely alien, but yet familiar at the same time." So Doty, in all those ayahuasca experiences that he had, when he was talking about all these flashbacks and all this craziness, <laughs> what happens is you open up this, it's a weird effect where if you do DMT and you have these powerful experiences, you open up this door. And I don't know what the chemical effect of it is or what the mechanism is, but something happens when you open up that door where you can open up that door again, even in a dream. And so the speculation is that what 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 happens when people have like near death experiences, when people have alien abduction experiences, when people have these crazy things they say happen to them, most likely what it is is some sort of a weird endogenous dump of DMT. Like you know how something can happen to you and you get this crazy adrenaline rush. Yeah, they, be- they believe that it's possible that something can happen to you and you get a crazy DMT rush. And that it's 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 very difficult to to access, but that it's a function of the brain, and it's cell. causing you to, for lack of a better word, it's causing you to trip. Yes, but you might perceive it as a memory. You could perceive it at well, it feels as real, if not more real, than reality itself because it's intensely colored and brightly lit, and the the there's no borders to things, but yet there are. It's very, very, very difficult to describe. I'm doing a terrible job of describing it, and all around you, it's alive with entities, and these entities are communicating with you both with sound and with visual cues. It's a very, very, very weird trip. Like you think in in a negative way, or if you try to control it, they'll like literally shake their finger at you, go no, 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 no. But then if you get it right, it calms down. Like it's it's like a lesson in how to think. It's a very, very bizarre, bizarre trip. The most bizarre out of all the psychedelics by far. The way I describe it is mushrooms times a million plus aliens. Yeah, it's the mandala. It's the center. Of the, the of the mandala of all this is how McKenna described it the mandala of all the different psychedelic experiences the center of it the the, the literally the the fucking point zero the event horizon of that is DMT. So do you feel like uh, to 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 do it? Do you feel like you're being recreational or constructive? Constructive. I try not to do anything recreationally. I smoke a little weed recreationally, have a drink recreationally, but I think psychedelic experiences. They're so beneficial. I've gotten so much benefit out of them that I don't 
I don't like. I feel like I'd be it'd be a waste. To Do you not, mean like personally or as a performer? Personally, personally. Yeah. Well, as a performer, you know, eventually, personally first, and as a performer, I benefit from the the you know whatever I get out of it personally. Yeah, yeah. Because oh, I, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, all tied together. No, I'm with you. But, but you don't you don't think of funny jokes or something. No, they don't, the people don't tell you funny jokes that you can put into your act. <laughs> nope, nope, nope. No, it's all about correcting your your bullshit. It's almost like, all right, you haven't been here a while. Come on, in. we got to say it's like going to the dentist. When you haven't been to the dentist in like two years. You're one of those fucking guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like, oh, sit down, sit down. And sit they down. find Let me all, see what all the kinds fuck of you got stuff. Going yeah. on here. Oh, yeah. you got this. Why are you thinking about this? Da, 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 da. Don't think about that. That's just stupid. You're wasting your time thinking. It's like they sort of explain to you the the wasted paths that you're taking with your thinking and your mind and then even with your actions so how long the how long do the 15 minutes feel like well i did several in a day so i did uh three or four 15 minute ones in a row so uh you know like just blast off come back to baseline hit it again But would you be like man that was just 15 minutes or would it feel like you were gone like days no it doesn't feel like days it 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 it's it feels like it's when you're in the state itself it almost feels like time doesn't exist like yeah. you're not see ex, in, unless you think about it too much like sometimes I'll think about like I don't want this to end so quick and then they're like stop thinking all this stupid shit like you're wasting all your time it's like imagine enjoying a great movie and being like man this movie's gonna end soon yeah shit. No, I know that feeling this yeah. movie's only ten minutes in and I, I I know it's only got an hour and fifty minutes to go. Shit, I wish it could go on forever. That's a wasted thought. Like, why not just be in the moment and enjoy it? So it's, you know, that that expression, be in the moment, is like so overdone and hippie and fucking yoga. <laughs> like, so many people say things like that and it just makes you moan. Like, oh, you shut the fuck up. Because it's like, it's so cliched and annoying when they yeah, say no, it. I, but I know what you're saying. Yeah. there's wisdom in it, un- unfortunately. There's yeah. just so many of these fucking fake spiritual people that clog up all these words and they ruin some of these definitions because you know oh just be in the moment find your center oh fuck you okay i'm not listening to your like i used to take yoga from this guy that was a total bullshit artist he was a good yoga instructor but he was he was intoxicated by the fact that he was teaching yoga and that all these people came to him and his ego would feed off of this this yoga class to the point where he would say all these things and you would see people roll their eyes like my wife used to hate him because he was so cheesy and yeah. he would like kind of hit on the ladies that would be there and he wound up fucking some dude's wife and it was like a disaster left his wife and she left her husband and now they're miserable together it's like he was like a fake spiritual guy. And these fake spiritual people, they have this way of ruining a lot of like really wise notions. And yeah. one of them is living they, they in the use moment. It as, they're using it as a tool. Well, you know, it's like, or they're claiming to be enlightened when really they're just a student on the path and maybe they have some good ideas along the way to enlightenment, but they're not quite there. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of that, man. It's like a lot, a lot of people searching like this, these new age type people that are searching for some sort of a meaning. And if you find the wrong shaman, you find the wrong yogi, you find the wrong guru, you could go down a bad path. I mean, the guy who's the head of Bikram Yoga has got like all these rape allegations, oh, yeah, and sexual assault allegations. He drives a fucking Bentley everywhere. He's loaded. He's got fucking gold crusted Rolexes and He's like clearly not a spiritual enlightened guy, but he's the head of this whole Bikram movement, which is like filled with all these pseudo spiritual people. 
you know, I was sitting there one day reading a um, a book, reading Al Sharpton's most recent book. <laughs> Why would you do that? It's a long story. Is it my, written in crayon? No, my my agent, um, my literary agent, uh, represented Al Sharpton. Did a book with Al Sharpton, so I'm reading an Al Sharpton book, and I'm, and I'm sitting there, and a, and a guy is coming down the road walking a dog, and he looks like a like he's like a yachtsman. You know, the guy walking a dog is like clearly a yachtsman. Like, that's his world. And he comes up and says to me, you know, you know, I had a meeting with him one time. And he came up in a chauffeured car. And he had a Rolex watch on. And he proceeded to tell me how he lives on a $23,000 a year salary. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's... Wow. It was his, I don't know how old that story was. I don't know how true that story was, but it was kind of like he was sort of like pointing out the, you know. Well, there was a guy the, once. The, like, a, like, a, like an apparent discrepancy. Oh, there's a massive know? discrepancy. There was a guy once that was on this radio show that I was listening to that was um, the head of a corporation that was approached by Jesse Jackson because there was some something had gone on, something where there racial insensitivity was, you know, uh, was they were being accused of something that was racial, racially insensitive. So Jesse Jackson came on, and essentially the pitch was, you are going to hire my company to give seminars on racial sensitivity, and it's going to cost you a quarter million dollars a year, and if you do not, we are going to protest you, we're going to make it miserable, we're going to cost you far more than, it would, than you would spend to have my company come in the Rainbow Coalition or whatever the fuck. But isn't it was. that like isn't that extortion? extortion. Oh. It's is that illegal? It's not illegal. Oh. It is and it isn't. I mean, it is illegal if you call it extortion. But what he is essentially saying is it's within your best interest to align yourself with yeah, it's, out, it's an out of court settlement. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, an yeah. out of court settlement that they profit from in, a, in an incredible way. But he had like all these crazy demands. Like he wanted to have shrimp cocktail. Like a, like Jesse Jackson had all these like very specific demands as far as the uh, the kind of food, the amount of food that he was to be given, what what was supposed to go on, you know, what kind of car he was supposed to be picked up in. And you know, you look at Reverend Jesse Jackson. He's a, he's a religious man. Well, where's he getting all this fucking money? Yeah. He is a wealthy, wealthy guy. <laughs> and he's wealthy by being what they call a race pimp. And that's how this guy was describing it. He was like, he's a race pimp. Like this guy finds these scenarios where something goes wrong, moves in, and then extracts money from the situation. I should send you my Al Sharpton book. I won't read it. You won't read it? Because nope. there's a really good chapter. <laughs> there's one really good chapter in that book where he talks about um, how people's positions on things evolve over the years. And I thought that was good. Then there's a really horrible chapter where he talks about how his role in comforting Michael Jackson's family upon Michael Jackson's death, where he was, he's, he's sort of presents himself as the great hero. And, oh, God. <laughs> He's I don't a know fool. why. I, I think I read. You know, my agent was like, "You're the last guy in the world I would expect to read a um, a Sharpton book." But I told him, I said, "Well, here's the thing. That's probably why I'm reading it because all my life I've heard about this guy. I I really don't understand who he is or what he does." Well, he's to me. It's just one of these names. You know, it's like almost like he's almost got a name like Peta. Yes. Where people hear it and they roll their eyes. Do you know what I mean? Like it's almost become like um, he'd cringe to hear someone say this, but it's almost become like. Like he's almost the punchline. Yes, he is a for, punchline. for so many people. You yeah. know, so many pundits and commentators. You know. Yeah. But I realized that I was kind of a victim of that, or not victim of. It, I was like uh, doing that 
Right, I couldn't tell you what the guy did. I couldn't tell you what he stood for. But you thought of him as a punchline. Yeah, I just knew that of him, you know. Well, you know the Tawana Brawley, the the case that got him famous. Yeah, he re- he talks about that. Yeah, which is hilarious. I mean, he represented a woman who made up a fake allegation of being raped by white people and wrote things on her body, and it turns out none of it happened. Yeah. She just made it all up, and he was demanding you know, justice and all this crazy shit, and he was you know, on every television show and all throughout you know, the, the news cases and all this different shit, and it turned out that what he was doing was just it was based on nothing it was based on all lies it was based the the entire scenario jet, jetted him into the public eye it was a fake scene yeah i can't tell you whether i read that in this book or whether one of the many people who saw me reading the book and had to come up and give me their two cents on the subject yeah. told me that well story. it's amazing that the guy became famous for demanding justice for yeah. something that never took yeah. place but it's a perfect analogy or it's a perfect representation of who he is i mean yeah. and also how bizarre our sensitivities are to race that with this fucking clown is on msnbc or cnbc or whatever the fuck he is giving his opinions on all these different things and his opinions are brutally dumb like his his way of communi- when he has to communicate when he has to debate people who are intelligent or have nuanced opinions on these subjects like his his clear and obvious bias and his his cookie cutter idea of racism in america like racism is a real issue without a doubt but having a guy like that represent the black community almost fosters racism it's almost like if i was a racist and i wanted to make sure that people had a negative opinion of black people i would take the most clownish cartoon versions of black leaders and feature them prominently on television in order to reinforce reinforce these ideas of these cartoonish figures being this is what represents the black community isn't the black community silly you know, and that's what happens. Instead of getting a Neil deGrasse Tyson, a Cornell West, instead of getting these super intelligent, very articulate people with broad, sp- broad perspectives, you get this goofball with a fucking conked hair and you know a, a stapled stomach, and he's a, he's a goofball. Yeah, and his many thousand dollar suits on television demanding you know reparations for slavery. It's like, come on, man! Like this is—it's almost a setup. It's almost like to in- engineer racism. Like, <laughs> Jesse Jackson barely can speak English. I mean, he's obviously an educated guy. He obviously is articulate. But his if you're a professional speaker, which essentially he is, his ability to enunciate words is so sloppy and so confusing. It's like, do you know how you sound? Yeah. Like, you almost sound like you're doing this on purpose. You know, when this is, when you talk, this is good. Like, you, you listen to him talk. It's almost like he's too lazy to say the words in a way that everyone can understand them. Or he, li- there's like a, he likes the cadence of it in some way. Yeah, they used to do... Does Neil deGrasse Tyson ever speak on... Does he ever, have you ever heard him speak on race? Talk mm. about race? I never have heard him. So I, I mean, I only hear him talk that. about what he talks about professionally. Yeah. He's talked about some other science-based things, not just uh, astrophysics. I've, I've heard him speak on genetically modified foods and some misconceptions oh, really? of people. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I've heard him speak on some other things that people have some misconceptions of. You know, just sort of science-based stuff, but I haven't heard him speak on race. He's an interesting guy. He's a fun dude, man. I'm yeah, really there's that thing, um, the Incomprehensible Universe, mm-hmm. that series. Yeah. It's an amazing series. Yeah. I think it's like, I think it's that's what it's called. Have you seen the Cosmos? The the the, no, the new version seen, of no, it? No, no, I oh, haven't. It's great. 
It's great because it also he made it very accessible. This version, the con, like the the story of uh, Giordano Bruno, I think that's his name, the guy who was burned at the stake for suggesting that the universe is infinite. Yeah, and that they were like, "Why, you fucking crazy bitch? We're gonna light you on fire unless you tell, unless you repent." That and, there's a brick yeah, wall. Yeah, there's a brick wall out there. There's a ceiling out there, and behind that <laughs> is a door, and God's out there, you know. And he he was convinced that it, that wasn't the case, but he did the whole Giordano Bruno thing. He did it in animated form. He made an animation of it, which is fantastic. He also made an animation form, which you'd be interested in, showing how wolves became dogs. And over the course of human civilization evolving, how these wolves who had become friendly with people had eventually gotten to the point where the people were feeding them and the wolves stayed close. And then those wolves had slowly but surely morphed into dogs. That's on Cosmos? Yes. Yeah. Amazing. Because it was There's so much wild stuff coming out of... Um, did you, say, you know about those Russians that were taking fox? Taking foxes? Yes, yes, And yes. doing selective breeding on them? Yeah. Just how fast you can change stuff, man. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. You can, yeah. I mean, you, all you all you need to do is look at what they've done with dogs. You know, the 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 time that human beings have been. I mean, what is the established timeline for agricultural civilization? Is what is it? Ten thousand years? Or yeah, something like that? ten eleven thousand years. And, and, anatomically modern here, like uh, you pick your number, but hundred thousand. Yeah. So in that time, which is a blink of the eye. You've made a fucking poodle out of a wolf. Yeah, man. You've made a chihuahua. When for, when Americans first first passed into North America, there weren't like breeds of dogs. It was just like the dog they had. That's crazy. You know, they weren't. They didn't have like that's fourteen hundred chihuahuas. Fourteen hundred, fifteen hundred. No, no, no. Fifty. Probably sixteen. Probably some. I mean, it's a hotly debated number, but sometime between like some four. Our oldest sites are fourteen thousand years. But people think there has to be sites we haven't found or will never find that are older, maybe twenty thousand years. But when, like, like say when, like Daniel Boone came across America. Oh no, they had breeds. They had breeds. Oh yeah. When did they start having? Like, when is it established? I have no idea. I have That's no so, idea. So fascinating. There's probably like I'm sure there's great stuff written about it. But you know, like they had. So when when the first Americans migrated into North America, they were traveling with. A, a domestic version, you know, something that had been domesticated for quite some time, a domestic version of the Eurasian wolf. And then they came down, and here you had a number of wild canines, you know, wolves, which the animal they were traveling with could breed with wolves. You now find that in certain cases, wolves and coyotes, they, they don't, uh, they don't, I don't think they, always put off viable young but they do think that there are hybridization events between wolves and coyotes so at some point these guys came down with this eurasian wolf there was probably almost certainly there had been some in you know some inbreeding with wolves and then out of that stock created lord knows what all you know because by the time lewis and clark like you know when lewis and clark were out and they were eating dogs of plains tribes they had those dogs weren't showing like there hadn't been dogs that came from europe from colonists hadn't put dog blood into the dog blood and they came and they had a dog that looked like yeah like what they call it, like it looked like a what they now call in vietnam like a meat dog like just like a mutt dog you know multi like with multiple colors on them there was a recent thing um where they've done a genetic study on certain um hybrids where they found a hybrid that's part coyote part wolf and part domestic dog 
Is that right? Yeah, there is really recent. Really recent. That kind of surprised because one of the things people look at is uh why are you know, coyotes in the east are just different. The bigger. Mm-hmm. You know, they feel that there's that there that there was hybridization events of wolves and coyotes that gave you kind of like a like a bigger coyote in the east and you have smaller coyotes in the west. Yeah, this is uh from the Washington Post. Uh, coyote wolf hybrids are prowling Rock Creek Park in DC suburbs. What the fuck, man? Really? This is a, yeah, this is a coyote wolf hybrid in the Washington DC suburbs. Isn't that nuts? Koi koi wolves. And they've uh, they've recently um, established that wolves have returned to California. The first known wolf, uh, you know, within X amount of coming years. out of where? I'll find out. Coming right out now. is it? They, is it like? Uh, the red wolves coming out of Arizona, New Mexico. I'll, I'll tell you right now because it's a uh, a totally um, new thing that they've proven. It's from yeah, this it's a, a where they've established it. Um, the wolves' controversial return to California. It's on Popular Science magazine. Uh, popular opinion is divided on how to manage the gray wolf. So it's a gray wolf. 2011, a male gray wolf called OR7 left his pack in Oregon and traversed 1,200 miles to California, where the sore travel isn't atypical for gray wolves. The terrain OR7 covered set him apart from the pack. He became the first confirmed wolf in California in almost a century. Man, no kid. Yeah. And so... Had know, he been collared in Oregon? He must have been. It's a good question. It must have, right? If they figured out where he is. You know, a guy in Missouri one time killed one outside of his chicken coop. He thought it was a coyote. That thing had come from Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Well, there was a guy that crossed the Mississippi. They killed a, a mountain lion in Connecticut that turned out to be from South Dakota. Yeah, you hear about that fucking thing? I'm, I'm telling you, walk, I was like, I, I don't mean to say like I was on this story long ago, but you know, my entire life, this debate about where li- mountain lions that turn up in the east or where wolves that turn up in weird places. My entire life has been this battle between people who be like, oh, it's escape pets. It's escape pets. Mm. You know? And now it's becoming clear that in so many of these cases, it's not. Things just leave now and then, and they have a very clear sense of purpose, and they travel tremendous distances. Yeah, this is OR7. They actually got a trail cam photo of this thing in California. Yeah. Big and it used to, every time someone saw something like that, people would be like, oh, you didn't see it, or you saw an escape pet. And you'd think that like every household had a mountain lion pet <laughs> to account for all the lions. Uh, the guys would be like, it was a damn lion. Like, I found where something had killed a deer. I went back the next day, and there was a lion sitting there. be like, it's an escape pet. It's a pretty <laughs> proficient, you know. It's, it, my whole life has been going on, and now finally, I mean, the guys that have been pushing for this forever finally got to feel a lot better. When now that, that through tracking devices, we're able to go like, yeah, a wolf decided one day, you know, to leave there and go down. There's a grizzly that one day decided to mosey out of the Rockies and made it out into eastern Montana. You know, there's an elk that did a many. Usually, it's you know, it's usually these wide ranging predators. They got wolverines that I was just reading the thing about. They had a wolverine. Back up a little bit because this, this winds up being interesting. They did a ra- they were doing a radio collar study in Alaska about a road. They're t- th- thinking about putting a road in into the Juneau area. Okay, so they've been doing a study on animal movements in that area to try to anticipate how this road might impact wildlife and then, and then to just to see about their migration patterns and movement patterns. They went in and collared a bunch of stuff. They had a 
radio collared moose fall into a crevasse in a glacier and then a radio collared bear tried to go in there and get him out and fell in and died and i think that was then scavenged by a radio collared wolverine <laughs> they also That's had so a wolverine crazy. they had a wolverine collared there get caught by a trapper 250 miles away in bc wow 250 miles it yeah. walked wolverines are really oh, rare amazing, to find man. right yeah, they're, they're rare to find like, i'm telling you that's themselves. one of the last things of large you know like north american fauna that's one of the last things i'm looking for you're looking for a wolverine i have not laid eyes on one my friends wow. that uh Yana saw one caribou hunting. Uh, my brother Danny was hunting spring bears one time and saw wolverines digging through the debris field at the base of an avalanche looking for critters that got swept up in the avalanche. I got a handful of friends that seen one. I haven't seen one yet. Those just badgers and wolverines, th- those types of animals are so bizarre. Dude, I was driving, down the, I was driving down the Hall Road, the, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline Road, and... You know, you're up like if you go if you're on that road like the the pipe the road that parallels the Alaska pipeline Dalton Highway if you're on that road and you go west you're not gonna you know you depending on your line of travel you won't hit another road till you're in Europe you know and you're in Russia <laughs> wow. and then you go the other direction you're gonna get way into Canada before you hit a road I mean you're out in the middle of nowhere I'm not in the middle of nowhere but it's very remote relative to anything we can comprehend down here driving on that road one time. Um, all outsteps the links. Whoa. Okay, and it looks like it's like a cat with a baby's face on it, like a human baby's face on it, man. Whoa. And outsteps the links, and like its level, it just like to be to have an animal look at you like that, and it, it just with utter lack lack of comprehension. Like I can't say this for sure, but more than other animals, you feel that he had never seen that before never seen a person it's just like usually like you'll see an animal he cuts out in the road right and he sees a car and he gets that like oh shit you know this ain't good you know based on whatever experiences he's had or responses that he's witnessed from his mother okay or like some sort of like they kind of get tense they're they're gauging risk but just this thing steps in the road and just looks kind of like like this look on his face and i'm anthropomorphizing here but look on his face is like now what in the hell is that (laughs) followed by utter lack of interest and just like left he's like he looked i don't know what that is i can't see this bringing anything good to me and then wandered off and it was one of the weird like that's the only one i've seen look at that thing they don't even look real no man i'm telling you what so freaky they are so tall like how tall this this thing is like this high man so like two feet high just yeah leggy though huge feet just a weird look. You know, they're like snowshoe hair specialists, man. They like to hunt snowshoe hair. So it has big feet so they can get through Walk the snow. Walk on the snow. Quiet hunters. Yeah, they're snowshoe hair specialists. Cameron Haynes was telling me about bears that um, come out of hibernation. And as they come out of hibernation is the same time where the moose are stuck in the snow. And that it's oh, that just wet, start- sloppy yeah. snow. And yeah. so the moose are like plodding and these bears come out and they haven't eaten anything in months because they've just been hibernating but they see these moose and they can't help but kill them so they just go on these rampages killing every moose they find and just leaving their carcasses because they can't really handle meat yet 
Yeah, no, I got it. They, but they they like to have the opportunity at it. Well, they just their instincts. They just because when they attack. come, when they do come out, you know, they'll come out and eat grass for a while, eat vegetation. But they do spend a lot of time um, following that. They spend a lot of time looking for you know what we call winter kill, um, just scavenging you know carcasses they can find, and then they hammer hammer fawns, and that's something people used to not realize about black bears is the high rates of like fawn mortality you get from black bears on elk, moose, deer, you know, they, they don't like, it doesn't seem like they really go after the adults, like healthy adults under normal circumstances, but they really find now that black bears just turn up and hit calves and fawns in a way that no one ever thought before. They smell that placenta. It's like, yeah, we used to have this idea of them as being kind of like the kinder, gentler bear, you know, but they're, they know these spots. They turn up in these spots before things turn up there to drop fawns. You know? The second mountain lion or third mountain lion I ever saw, I saw cutting through a bunch of elk calves in a calving area. You can just imagine how much the thing like that can clean house. Yeah. God damn. When we were uh, bear hunting, I got to watch bears fight. We watched a, a fucking no-holds-barred brawl between this female bear with her two cubs and oh, this really? male who had come into the bait. They were, she fucking went to war, man. The bears, the babies climbed up the trees. They were way the fuck up the trees, like to the point where we were worried. One of them got real squirrely. He was like kind of like upside down on the tree. Like he was way up there. And they're really young. And uh, the adults can't climb because they get too heavy. Yeah. And this big male had come in and it was a big female. And first the babies ran up the tree and the female took off. She left. And then she was, she just thought about it. She said, you know what? Fuck that. And she turned around and attacked him, turned around and challenged him. And they both went up on their back legs and they were just going at it. Just, and we were sitting there on the ground because Cameron's fucking nuts. He likes to hunt on the ground. He likes to bow hunt. No tree stand. So we're just, there's like a a tree (laughs) that's fallen and we're set up behind this tree and we're watching these fucking you know, six, seven-foot brown bears going to war right in front of us. I mean, no more than 30, 40 yards away. They were duking yeah, out. Yeah, and you got to be wondering, like, in the middle of this fight, all of a sudden he comes rolling over and there's your ass sitting there. Yeah, <laughs> well, we, we, I was knocked up, man. I had an arrow knocked and, you know. But I've ever been, I've ever, like, such a little kid, one of my earliest memories, not earliest memories, but I remember being a little kid, and my dad got a phone call one night that one of his hunting buddies had was sitting on a bear bait with his bow, and a sow came in with cubs and smelled them and shooed her cubs up a tree, but they went up past him in the tree, and then they started squealing and bawling up there, and she came up and mauled his legs. Whoa. Yeah, he went up, yeah, he went up in the hospital. Fuck. Yeah. So she he's was small tr- enough that she could make it up the tree. She got up, well, she's up enough to get at his boots. Yeah. But, I mean, they, you know, I mean, most, though, I don't know. I, I've heard that that some black bears get too big to climb i don't know i mean they can climb pretty good i mean and i don't know to, to what extent but i mean your typical bear is your typical black bear can get itself up a tree she went up a tree the one that we saw she went up a tree a little bit but only like maybe five or six feet where her kids went like shit yeah. they were 50 feet yeah up. i'm sure it depends a lot on the circumference of the tree and whatnot but yeah for sure but yeah but grizzlies don't i mean they when they're young but when they get older, they can't get up that tree. Yeah, that's what they were saying. They Because they had tree stands there, but he likes to hunt on the ground. But he said, if you see a grizzly, then we go up the tree stand for sure. Yeah. Yeah, there's a 
bunch right there. It was kind of like that. Oh, that's cute. But it was crazy to watch them duke it out, like right there in front of us. I mean, it was why and it went on for a while. And then he would come back, and she would chase him off again, and then finally he gave up. But then uh, as it got darker, she took off, and then a bunch of bears came in. It, when it's dark, that's when it's really crazy. They start calm. Alberta's flooded with bears, man. They said that there's between, depending on who you ask, between three and eight per acre. And they're dealing with 8,000 no, acres. No, not acre. Per square mile oh, yeah, would be me, super not high. Acre, yeah, per yeah, square yeah. mile. That's yeah. what I meant. And they're dealing with 8,000 square miles. So he said- there's just bears everywhere. And so the first time I got there, you know, we, we sat down, we waited. I'm like, where are all these fucking bears? You know, if there's so many bears, like you, you think you would see one. And then when you see one and then you see another and you don't hear them, that's what's crazy because the ground is thick with leaves and pine yeah. needles and stuff. So literally all of a sudden there's a bear, there's a bear. Like he's there on looking at you, you know, from 70, 80 feet away. You know, just you didn't even see him coming. Yep. All of a sudden he appears because it's so dense. You know, so many trees up there. I was calling turkeys one time and had a bear come behind me. Um, you know, like predators, when you're making, when you're calling turkeys in the spring, you're making hen noises to mm-hmm. track males, um, track the toms. But predators will come to that noise. And uh, I had a bear come in behind me that I never heard until I heard it breathe. <laughs> it sounded like a dude and you're on the ground sitting no, I'm right sitting on the ground and i hear <sighs> i mean this thing was i mean right there like, like five I, feet? I heard it breathe over my shoulder how many feet yeah like from i don't know five six feet i'm just oh. there but i when i turned i was scared but that thing was more scared when i turned he like turned himself inside out man you just know, took off. Oh, yeah, it was amazing. Wow. But, you know, it's funny. We're talking about like bears climbing trees, black bears, and grizzly bears. Um, I wrote about this at some point, but we were, my brother and I were laying on this ridge one time hunting elk. And like during the midday when it's warm, like nothing happens, you know, we'll just go sleep somewhere and wait for the elk to come back out because they go into black timber just to feed, to bed down. So there's really no sense and there's nothing you can do. You just sleep. And at one point, I wake up because I hear a noise and I wake up and there's a black bear standing there. And he goes off down this ridge line. And uh, I'm sorry, just goes down off the ridge down toward the valley floor. That night we headed out to go hunt uh we headed out to go hunt elk and we happened to go in the direction that the bear had went. And my brother still had a bear tag. I had filled my bear tag, but he still had a bear tag. And as we're walking, I hear the noise of its claws on the bark. Like a real loud, you know, like barks falling and scratch, you know, you imagine like what a cat would sound like or something, scratching up something. And I'm like, that must be that black bear. So we go hauling ass up the tree thinking that we'll maybe get the bear up the tree and be able to check it out. But we run up there, it's not a black bear. It's a sow grizzly standing there and she's got two cubs that are about four or five feet up this tree. And she's standing there at the base of the tree and she woofs at us like a dog. Like a hoof, barking, you know. And those cubs come down the tree, and we're just standing right there, man. And it's like you can't—you can never say it was close to getting scratched unless you got scratched because you don't know what's in the animal's head. But like reviewing it in my head, that was one—that was like a very sketchy moment, you know. As that bear is kind of like, because it's like the last thing you're supposed to do, right? Is like mess with their cubs. And here we are, just running up on there. And when she got those cubs down out of the tree, and they started going up the hill away from us, she was taking her paw and moving the cubs with her paw. Wow. Pushing them ahead of her. 
Wow. Like the same way, like, you know, when you're like trying to get your kids to go where yeah. you want, you always Pat put your hand on, yeah. you always like got your hand on their head or yeah. <laughs> you're somehow trying to guide them, you know? Wow. Yeah. She's like, get going, get going. Wow. That was wild, man. But she could have spun around and just scratched those Well, bad. they say that's the big reason why a lot of people, hikers, get attacked, right? It's a female with their cubs. Just coming across something. Yeah. Like, I, I just, this blew my mind. I just read that not a single bow hunter has been killed by a grizzly bear. You know, while bow hunting, even though bow hunters get scratched up all the time, like every year there's some guy getting scratched up. Not a single bow hunter's been killed by a grizzly bear in at least 20 years. Wow. You know, and last year there was like three grizzly bear fatalities in Montana, Wyoming. Well, that was one of the things you saw on that hunt show was how difficult it is to bow hunt for grizzlies because, they, first of all, Kodiak Island was very windy. Like these guys were like, they were taking shots and the arrow would just whoop, just take off and, oh, and, yeah. and miss the windy bear. Windy and yeah, it's just miserable and wet. And, and you got to get so close yeah, with the bow, that's man. that's the thing. Be, 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 it's one thing like being a stand and waiting for a, a whitetail to walk underneath you, but to creep up on a fucking giant nine foot bear that's outside, you got to get within 30, 40 yards of this thing you to know. get an accurate shot on it. And it's windy and everything there. But Now in that show when they're doing that, this happens a lot, but I know that like shows don't show it, and outdoor writers don't write about it. But oftentimes, very often, I, I can't say it's the majority of the time, but like a, a very common practice when a guy's bow hunting brown bears is the minute that arrow makes contact with that bear. The guide's lighting it up with like a three seventy five H and H. So they shoot it with a gun right the, after the minute air. that arrow hits. Yeah, that's probably smart. I mean, I that saw that hits, man. on a show. It was a, a bow hunting show where this guy shot a fucking elephant with a bow, and the elephant turned and he like fuck you, and the elephant starts running him, and boom, they shot him in the head yeah. with a rifle. And like he's gonna call that I hunted an elephant with a bow. Like the fuck you did. All you did was piss an elephant off, and it charged you. And these guides shot the elephant in the head. They killed the elephant. Yeah, I'm not. Dimin- I'm off. not diminishing the balls it takes to get in there. Like I watch a thing. Like you know, I watch a thing where uh, Tom Miranda, you know, kills like a big grizzly with his bow. And by no, I mean by any means, like he, it was like. He got a great hit on that bear. That bear ran and fell over. I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just saying you hear about it so often. You talk to guides so often. And they even do it with rifles. Right. You know, even if a guy hits it with a rifle, he's going to start pumping lead. Yeah. Because it's so hard to anchor them. And then they go in those alders and you don't want to lose them. So you don't want to go in there after them. Take the initial shot. They consider you shot that bear, yeah. and then everybody else. And shoots the guide, you know, or whoever can can do a follow. I really didn't like watching them shoot the elephant. There's something to me about shooting some animals where it's like I don't get it. Like why? I don't know why you would travel all the way to Africa yeah. to shoot an elephant with a bow while these people behind you rifle it, and you're calling that bow hunting. I wouldn't shoot it. I don't. I couldn't shoot an elephant just because I don't like. I don't have. I didn't. I don't have like a, a context with the animal, a cultural context. Do you know what I'm saying? Like right. with North American animals, I find that generally when I go hunt something, I like to have ex- have experience with it and understand sort of, you know, understand it. And it would for for African hunting, for me to like enjoy it, hunt Africa, I would probably want to go there just to have a look around and be there, right? And then maybe go again, just for me personally. Then go again, and I might enjoy hunting more once I sort of felt like I understood the animals. 
you know, or I understood I like more about the biology and sort of like I just understood the area better. It would make me feel more like like a like a like to what I want to have in a in a predator prey relationship. We're going down to film this year. Uh, we're going down to Bolivia, and we'll go out hunting with Amerindians or go along on a hunt with Amerindians. And um, you know, they they go out and do meat hunts for capybara, paca. They bowfish for fish a lot. One of the things they like to hunt is they like to hunt spider monkeys, you know? And I've always vowed, like, I'll never eat a monkey. You know, I, I used to always say that. I'll never eat a monkey. But now I'm going to be down there, and these guys, you know, presumably they're going to get a monkey. They're going to cook it. And you're going to try it? I can't decide, man. Yeah, I'm not into eating primates. I, I just feel like, you know, I can't decide what I'll do when I'm sitting there. I would have to be I starving. Ate dog, I ate dogs and didn't like it. At all. Well, you ate a coyote, which is crazy. That you didn't bother me. Like that didn't bother me in like an emotional way. But I'm saying I tripped out emotionally about eating a dog. Right. So I can't imagine what I might suffer to be chewing up a primate. I'm not. I, it. And it's just yeah. like I remember reading one time, and this kind of I was this explained this to my brother the other day when I was talking about this conundrum I'm in. Where I was reading about a guy who was descri- he was describing the hunt for monkeys. And a dude hit a, and he he was just observing. He was observing South, you know, South American tribal hunters or Amerindians. He was observing them hunting monkeys. And a monkey got shot in the back. And a monkey with a dart, and the monkey reached around and grabbed the dart. Whoa! So it, <laughs> that image, that image is so burned in my head. But I think, like, I don't know what I'll do, man. I'll be curious. I'll be curious if the guys I work with, if they want to eat the monkey or not. Yeah. But there's so many weird things that you go like this, though. These guys are indigenous hunters, okay? They hunt. They they make their own bowls. They live in the jungle. Like, any kind of thing. Like, if you went out and surveyed 100 Americans, 100 would say, like, by all means, if anyone can justify hunting, it'd be these boys, right? Um, They're going to be, they're hunting whether you're with them or not. So it's kind of like you look at, well, monkey's dead now. You know? Yeah, I guess I could see that. I, what I couldn't see is going there with a purpose to go shoot a monkey. I guess if I was there experiencing what it is like for them, and also if they offered me, a mon- like if it was part of like you're you're taken into their home and they're yep. cooking you a meal and they ask you, you know, they serve you what they eat, maybe then I would eat. Yeah, no, there's no, way I I'd shoot, there's no way I'd shoot a monkey. Yeah. And by saying that, I don't think that one shouldn't be allowed and whatever, you know, it just depends right. on the, the the consensus of biologists in whatever area, whether they can warn it or not. But no, I wouldn't. It's just like, I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't either. But I know that they have issues with baboons and people. Dude, no. in Africa, I, it's just like, I guess, I, I can't get it, but in Africa, you get the sense that people view ba- like baboons almost like how you might, like, uh, I hate to say it, almost like you might look at, like, raccoons and opossums that are getting into your dumpster. Yes, but they, they'll they kill a baby. They'll kill a human baby. Is that right? stolen human baby. I don't babies. know the first thing about them. Yeah, Cameron Haynes, who just got back from Africa, he shot a fucking baboon over there. Shot a baboon with a bow and arrow. And I'm like, why don't you shoot a baboon? And he's like, they actually encourage you to shoot as yeah, many baboons a, as possible because they're overpopulated and they're really dangerous. That's they're what friends of mine told me, man. Do uh, do the guys in Africa eat the baboons? No. They don't eat the baboons and they don't eat the hyenas. They don't like the hyenas? No. They kill them. They kill them whenever they can because they're so overpopulated, but they don't eat them. But he ate a kudu. He, he shot a kudu over there and ate that. He said it was amazing. Yeah. He said kudu, kudu is like similar, I guess, in a lot of ways to deer, elk. 
in the, the way it tastes. The, now, the word overpopulated is such a weird word yeah. and it's such an abused word. Whenever I hear that, I always get like, according to whose perspective? Right, Because right. again and again, we're told like, deer overpopulated. Like, yeah, I mean, from the perspective of some agricultural interests, deer overpopulated. From the perspective of auto insurers, you know, deer overpopulated. From the perspective of Lyme disease activists, you know, deer overpopulated. But from the perspective of a dude who likes to eat a lot of deer, you might be like, now's the good old days, man. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, this is perfect. If this I lived in some right. areas, uh, there's some areas of western Massachusetts that are so flooded with deer, I would definitely have one of those crazy bumpers on my truck. Yeah. You know, they have those crazy big steel yeah, bumpers. Brush guards, yeah. Man. yeah. They, well, they make them specifically for deer, too. To withstand a deer hit. Yeah, there was one of them that they, uh, we, were, we were pulling up photos of it the other day of 18-wheelers that they have these giant ones they put over the front of their trucks because deer, you know, are so common in, in a lot of these areas where they're transporting stuff. And they had one where this deer had just, it had hit it and the, the guard did its job, but the fucking entire truck was just painted with blood, you know, because it was no, going 65 it, miles an hour and you hit an animal, it's basically a bag of blood. It, vaporize, it, it yeah. vaporizes in such a disturbing way. And I recently wrote a thing about this on the, on the meat eater show website where I was talking about these recent controversies where someone will go and kill a African animal, you know, kill like a yeah, lion, yeah. post a picture well, great. of a lion. By the way, tell people where they can get that because I loved your perspective on it. And I loved one of the things that you pointed out about you're seeing all these things where people are getting pissed off, these pretty girls that are going over there and shooting these animals. And a lot of it is sexism. Oh, yeah, man. It pit, for a girl to go to African hunt pisses off people way more than for a dude to. And also for a wealthy person to hunt in Africa pisses off way more people than a middle class person yeah. hunting in Africa. Which is just weird, like, you know, it's so beyond the biology. It's just like weird, you know, sexual stuff. It's weird envy, class envy. Mm-hmm. However you want to think it. Like, whatever you want to determine about the legitimacy of hunting in Africa should really have nothing to do with the gender of of the hunter yeah but this this thing like one point i try to make in that thing that i wrote you could you could find if you just go uh, you could probably even type in like uh steven ranella african hunting controversy or go to the to themeateater.com you'll find the article but uh, but a point i make is when people look at someone posing with an african animal like a lion they they i think people look at it and they feel like they see a dead movie star (laughs) <laughs> because they don't know like all you know of that animal is sort of wildlife documentaries and then cartoon versions and the lion king it's like you feel like you're looking at that but in america we drive down the road and we see just like contorted pulverized deer carcasses yeah you can't escape it yes yeah and so i feel like it's never going to be as offensive you know, when someone sees a dead deer, it's not as shocking to them as be like, it's the animal from the movies. Right, right, And right. they killed it. You yeah, know? the anthropomorphizing of an animal is a real issue it when it comes really to It really feels to people more like, I, I remember a friend of mine who worked in the environmental movement, or I shouldn't say that because she was a conservationist, okay? So she worked in the conservation movement. And she complained about, um, half-jokingly, about charismatic megafauna. So that so much mental energy of Americans gets tied up in the preservation of charismatic megafauna. And those things become such money sinks that we miss 
opportunities to understand like this vast suite of other creatures out there that doesn't make it onto calendars. And she was, if I remember, I think she was speaking um, of the amount of research dollar and dollars and public interest and things that go into wolves, like understanding wolves, you know, and there's all the other animals that she calls like non charismatic megafauna. You just can't get someone to like care about them. Yeah. You know, and I think that's that's one as, as far as conservation goes. I think that's one thing that that conservation organizations that are based off of specific animals will always tell you is that they're looking at like apex or keystone, cornerstone species. So like a group like the National Wild Turkey Federation or the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, they'll point out they'll be like, yeah, this is about elk. We have an elk on our symbol. You might think that we fetishize elk, but I can tell you this: what's good for elk is good for everybody. Yeah. You know, it's one of the most demanding, like least tolerant things. And so if you preserve elk wintering habitat, you're also at the same time preserving the habitats of so many other species. And you might not say the same thing about if you went and preserved the habitat of, you know, some animal with a more restricted home range or something, it might not blossom outward to offer protection for all these other things. So that's one way in which like the charismatic megafauna thing winds up playing out is people go like, yeah, but by helping him, I'm helping everybody. So I'd like to have something on, for my calendar. People have that aversion to uh, trophy hunting. That's one of the other things that, that drives people nuts about Africa is that people are going over there for bloodlust. They're going over there just to kill. They want to stuff it and put on their wall this beautiful animal that should just be observed and appreciated for what it is. Yeah. I... That's something that I struggled with. And earlier I made a turn about something being like a, like, like a semantics thing. Because if you go and hunt and you keep something, like you have uh, right here in your studio, you have a, a, a deer antler. You got a, like a deer skull, right? By really any definition, you'd say like, you'd be like, well, that's a hunting trophy. You know, does that make you then a hunting, tro- like a trophy hunter, even though you ate the deer? To be a non-trophy hunter, would that mean that you should have thrown that deer head in the garbage? In order to be more pure, or is it more pure that you'd have that you'd maintain that emblem and pay respect to the animal in perpetuity by having its head here? So it's like you kept a trophy, you kept the meat and kept a trophy. But when people hear trophy hunter, I think what the what that means in our culture is that someone that just hunts for that purpose, like right. he just wants to go kill that thing. And this comes from guys never hunted in Africa. But so much of the controversy about Africa is that. People are going there and killing animals just for the head and bringing them home. In that way, you're probably trivializing the experience, but you're also not really looking at the broad picture of how game gets managed there and the importance that the commodification of wildlife plays in Africa, where here we have public owned, publicly owned wildlife, you know. So, and we have a really strident system where stringent system where we can protect, legally protect stuff. But in Africa, there's a great argument to be made for if it wasn't for the value of those animals to Westerners, if it wasn't for the hunting industry, those animals wouldn't be in those places where they are. Yeah, they there's literally way too many didn't forces. have those animals There's there way before. too many forces and factors that would have led to those being like ravaged ecosystems from hunting from people. I mean, hunting from people who are starving or who are wanting to graze livestock in those areas. And the fact that you bring in a currency and you monetize them, enables people to preserve these large tracts of land and have animals on there. So you can look at, like, what is Joe Blow's motivation? 
Joe Blow's motivation might be he thinks it'd be sweet to have a zebra hide on his floor. And you can condemn Joe Blow for thinking that. But you really, to be fair, you have to look at the impact that that money that he spent to get it has on the broader economy and on the wildlife politics of that place. So it's way more complicated than what any one individual's motivations were, you know, and it's just, I just caution people. And I, and I, I tell you what, I've had my share of looking at pictures of guys hunting in Africa and being like, dude, you just went out and paid someone and he showed you that. And you're like, well, that's what one of those is and shot it. I've felt that a thousand times looking at those pictures, but it's one of those things that the more I've learned about it and spoke to people who've gone there and, and, read about it, the more I've come to admit that, you know what, what's going on in Africa is vastly more complicated than what you're going to get from reading about internet controversies and people posting pictures. You really need to study up on that stuff before you condemn it, because I think you'll be you'll be kind of shocked by some of the stuff you learn. If anybody's interested in it further, we're, we're just about out of time, but Louis Thoreau has a documentary. Thoreau? How do you say his name? Thoreau. Thoreau mm. Louis Thoreau has a documentary about uh, African hunting camps where it kind of goes into great detail with these guys that run these camps about Is how right? these animals, they, they essentially wouldn't be there if it wasn't. They would be extinct. We, we're, we're out of time, right? Minute, we still, oh. Okay. Um, all right, dude. Uh, your book. You got that, the, the Buffalo books published. Oh, no. You know, my first book, um, which never had a chance in the real world, Scavenger's Guide to Oak Cuisine, it came out a long time ago, but I got the rights to it back. Right, and right, I published right. it digitally as a scavenger's guide. Um, I hope people go read it. It never got read when it came out, like not like my other books did, man. And I, and like I said, they just gave me my rights back. So How can able, they get it? How can someone get it? Oh, it's on every place you can buy digital books. Okay, we'll put Amazon a link, everywhere. We'll put a link up to it uh, after the show, and I also put a link up to the Daniel Boone thing that you did, the animated thing. Oh, sweet about man, Daniel that's great. Boone. Yeah, that was just up. Uh, dude, time flew. It's over. Hey. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> anytime, man. Anytime. Wish you lived closer. We do it all the time. Well, you are kind of closer now. And we're going to be real close when we're sharing the same tent. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty close. All right, folks. Uh, thanks to our sponsor. Thanks to Blue Apron. Go to blueapron.com slash Rogan and uh, get two meals for free. Thanks also to Me Undies. Go to meundies.com forward slash Rogan. Get 20% off your first order and go to rogan.ting.com and get 25 bucks off of any device. All right, you fucks. We'll be back soon. Uh, tomorrow, in fact. See you soon. Bye.